Welcome to episode 42 of a podcast presented by Fangraphs in unseasonably warm DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein joining me this week in the revolving co-host chair, making a return, I believe, from multiple guest spots on the show. Uh, she covers the New York Yankee, toiling away for this tiny little thing called The Athletic. She's also Fisher's mom. It's Lindsay Adler in Brooklyn, New York. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, obviously, um, some shit happened in baseball. We'll talk about. Uh, we have we kind of have two big stories to talk about in this segment. One being, of course, the lockout. The other one being um, the frenzy of signings before the lockout. Uh, our special guest is to get you away from baseball for a little bit. Is uh, Brandon Shaq Harris, who is a professional poker player, and we'll talk about. Um, his strange life as a professional poker player. He just finished up the World Series of Poker, which he wasn't able to really finish up because he got COVID. Um, but, you know, 13 hours a day for about a month and a half straight. Um, he did okay. He'll tell you he did horrible because he always thinks he did horrible. He did, he did all right. He had, a, he had finished, I think, in the money 11 times um, and and uh, has lifetime winnings in the World Series, I think, three and a half million. Um, but we'll also talk about how that's not all his money. Um and, and talk about how he also learned to play poker from the band Muse, which he was also once almost a part of. Uh, and then from there, we will get into uh, your band. Very excited. Rid of Me returns. We had Rid of Me on once more. Rid of Me has a new record, and it comes out today. And so we're playing that. It's a record release party on the show. We'll get into your emails. We'll catch up with Lindsay. We'll have a moment of culture, and then uh, you can get on to your baseball-less weekend. So let's start with that story, Lindsay. Um, it is... Thursday afternoon is 2.16, and for 15 hours and 17 minutes right now, the players have been locked out by the owners. Um, No human alive who follows baseball at all should be surprised we got to this point. Nonetheless, the hot takes are flying anyway. Um, But, Lindsay, there was absolutely no path to anything but this, right? Um, There was probably a path, but... um... But we but did had not all, get there. Had all sorts of gates and, and, and wire traps and mines on the way to it. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty clear. Sorry, my headphones fell out of my head. Um it was pretty clear from a few miles away that this was where the paths were going, I would say. Um I mean it would have been it would have been really nice um to have avoided a lockout situation. Um, I think. I think but um, yeah, by by the time they were the two sides were meeting in Dallas this week, it was kind of like a you know give it one last go and not they're going to hammer things out and make some drastic change to the trajectory of this off season and the future of Major League Baseball. So 
I was honestly surprised are. they met in Texas. I was really surprised they were meeting in Texas. I just thought like this is like we're done here. Like all sounds like they're meeting in Texas. I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is mm-hmm. it. It made me um, go from like zero percent to zero point three percent optimistic. Um, but I was shocked they even did that. And it sounds like they didn't really. I don't know. Like the last meeting was seven minutes. I think it was just kind of like, so what are, where are we going to go from here? Because we're going nowhere. Yep. Yep. It. Um. I mean, I'm. I'm sure it was a. Uh... I'm sure it was nice for the uh, the players to get to like see all their friends and whatnot because who knows when they'll be in an environment where they're surrounded by ball players again. Um, so I'm at least happy for them. I think there were like 50, 60 ball players there. I, I may be completely making that up, but you know, mm-hmm. um, always nice to see the homies before a long winter. So uh, at least that's a nice outcome, probably. So. Um, I, I don't want to get too much into, I guess, for the for the purpose of this conversation, I don't want to get too much into the the why we're here in, in terms of um, what both sides want in order for this to come to an end. Um, I kind of want to talk about like what just what happened really in those in the in the past thirteen hours, and and um, it's been it's a lockout, and Major League Baseball is is behaving as as a as as someone who locks out their labor um but they have really kind of gone hardcore um so and this obvious this affects you more than me and affects you in a, in a big way um teams are not talking to the media at all in any way they've they've been shut they've 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 gone into a blackout um and they're saying it's for legal reasons they can't because they can't talk about players um the mlb.com website has entertainingly uh, well, let's, let's start with the media thing. So, like, you can if you call someone, they're not going to call you back. Like, you're not going to like teams cannot talk to you right now. Ah, what a departure from the usual <laughs> situation of my life. <laughs> no, wait, is I I want to go back for a second. Right, so right now, let, okay, let's forget about right now. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to get to a, a non-stressful time for a GM. They can no longer can make trades or make signings. That the trade deadline's over. It's August 13th, right? Mm-hmm. If you called Brian Cashman, what's the odds that he would just answer the phone from zero to 100? Mm, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think normally during the season I run into cash fairly often. But, uh, I mean, I can get people to pick up my phone calls. Uh, I think what's funny is there have been times uh, in the past where I've tried to exchange numbers with someone and they're like, you know, I, I don't really talk to reporters. I'd feel really bad if I didn't answer your text or your call or whatever. And I'm like, that's not uh, all I do is uh, get ignored by people. Like if if at this point in my career, I were I were bothered by people ignoring my texts and calls, like I just would not be doing this anymore. So like, <laughs> um, you know, a full media blackout is like not great. Um, but um, I guess that's what it is. I guess, I guess that's what we're dealing with. It doesn't um, surprise me per se, but it's interesting. And But speaking of media blackouts, um, Major League Baseball kind of blacked out their own website uh, <laughs> at MLB.com. Uh, they wiped out all stories that uh, mention or involve players who are on the 40-man roster and therefore uh, locked out. They, uh, if you go to their roster pages, the uh, photo, the headshot of the player isn't there. 
Um, so they, they got rid of any sort of uh, image and likeness stuff. They said they're doing this all for legal reasons, but, it, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Lindsay's not a lawyer. It still seems a little over the top. Um, like podcasts are gone. There's all sorts of like, like all this kind of stuff is gone. And they're, I don't know, saying that they acted short-sighted is, is, you know, just kind of a gimme for the owners in the last decade. But um, it's going against them the stuff that the players have rallied and you know all of them on twitter have changed their you know not all of them but a huge portion of them have changed their their twitter avatar to the kind of gray generic face they replaced their headshot with an mlb.com um and then there's all this little stuff going on that you know i've heard about um in in the sense that uh they have been told they've you know they've received communications from major league baseball teams have received communications from major league baseball about what they I was going to say can and can't do, but forget that. About simply what they can't do. Um, and that includes things like just simply talking to players. They cannot talk to players at all. And, and it's a, it was a very sternly worded memo. It, was, it, was, it involved like you could show up in court if this happens. You know, like like legal threats, basically. Um, and just even like the littlest things that I'm going to make things up. I have no idea if Brian Cashman and Aaron Judge are really good friends or not. But like Cash can't send him a text saying Merry Christmas in a couple weeks. Can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um I'll make something. I don't even know if Matt Olson's married, but let's say Matt Olson <laughs> is married and his wife was about to give birth. Like Billy Bean and David Force couldn't say, "Hey, congratulations on the baby." They couldn't send that text, or you know, they, they literally it's, it's it's all hands off. Um, they can't talk to players at all, um, and it, it's it's getting, it just kind of feels all a little kind of hardcore. And I don't, uh, you know. At this press conference this morning, Rob Manfred said that they did this in order to push things forward, but I feel like their acts post the lockout itself are not pushing things forward. I mean, they're they're, they're kind of just yeah. creating more more I don't know more gear grinding and more 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 animosity. I mean, I think I think club and team executives are you know, executives and staff not talking to players. I mean, that just sounds like a pretty like standard week in Jeff Breidich's Rockies front office, right? <laughs> um, I just really wanted to make that joke, but uh, <laughs> like we've, we've seen this before. Uh, it's just, it's just called the Rockies or previous Rockies tenure. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the people I've talked to, you know, everybody understands that like the staff, they're in, they're in a weird spot. Um it's not their fault. It's not their fault that, you know, coaches can't talk with their players. Um, it's, it's not their fault. It's, it's, it's not a general manager's fault that he can't wish his player, you know, like a congrats on your wedding or congrats on your baby or congrats on whatever you think is cool in life. Um, you know, everyone kind of understands they're just in the middle ground. And I think what's interesting to me is that like a lot of, um, a lot of work fell to, sort of the support staff in the last few weeks mm-hmm. um, to to prepare for this. So I know that the Yankees were very, very proactive in making sure that like in the event of a lockout, um, which now that I think about it, maybe it's like for the best that we at least saw this coming so that they could do this. But, oh, for sure. You know, they, they made sure that they know what their off-season program should be. They made sure that they have facilities to train at. And, you know, someone noted to me that they actually benefit here from going through this with COVID last year. So, you know, the commissioner's office has, 
made it pretty clear that they moved to the lockout so quickly to minimize the impact um, of its effects in the early months, which I think it does. Um, I mean, it's, it's a little bit silly because it's like, you know, they are, they are stopping the players from working at a time when uh, the idea of player work looks very different from what it does during the season. But yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's a weird spot. Yeah. And, and, you, and, and I, I, you know, you brought up the front offices and I, I want to read an email real quick that we got very late from Mark and, and Mark says, uh, good morning, esteemed co-host and also <laughs> Kevin. We don't always need to say hi to KG first. I was going to write you a very long drunk email with a passionate rant or two, but every time I drink, I forget to write. Same. So instead, I'll send you a very long question in the morning. How do the employees in front offices feel about the lockout? Do they tend to side with the owners or the players? Obviously, there's no GM who's going to say out loud, my boss is an asshole. Young players need to make a lot more money. and There needs to be less team control and less revenue sharing. And so we aren't tempted to tank our teams. But are they at least secretly thinking it? And perhaps more importantly, are there potential outcomes to the CBA the front office staff are hoping for and things that would make their job easier, or maybe even more fun? Um, I think you'd find a mixed group in a front office. I think a lot of them are going to say, well, I work, my boss is the owner, so I got to take their side. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who are very, you know, I think good, I actually think the, the, the really good front offices are very, and I'm not saying this on a labor level, but just pro player period, um, you know, very supportive of their players and, and, and respect their players. I think those are the best front offices, um, regardless of the labor situation. And so I, I think it's a, it's real mixed. Um, I think the uniform staff that being like managers and, and like the coaches Lindsay brought up who, who want to work with their players and want to get their hands on the players are very frustrated by this and, and are, and are likely pro players. And I think maybe the further up you move the chain, maybe the more it get it, it starts to, to go the other way. Um, but I think it's a mixed group. I think, you know, potential outcomes. I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who work for us who would much rather have a rule set that the players are kind of pushing for that incentivizes them to put, the best roster on the field because you know a lot of them are playing the game the rules are incentivizing them to play but not necessarily liking it um and so it 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 becomes just this weird this weird world and it's always kind of the very we live in the united states we live in a capital country they're always the very weird balance of i want to do what's right for baseball and my owner wants to make money and sometimes those things don't necessarily clash very well together yeah, do you remember that um, <laughs> that video of agent turned general manager turned agent Brody Van Wagenen saying something like Rob just doesn't get it about something <laughs> last <laughs> year? I thought that was that's about as close as we're going to get as like uh, on sort of a candid take there. But I do think you know I I covered the Yankees and I think we I I definitely expected the. <laughs> Uh, November to turn out differently. I thought that because we don't know what the financial structure of the sport will look like, I thought that we would see basically very few transactions happening. I thought maybe we would see some like, you know, veteran reliever or like role player types who just want to like sign and be done with it. Right. Doing something like this. I did not foresee this bonanza. And like, when you look at the way that the Yankees have operated to this point, like it kind of does look like they have waited for the financial uh, to have a better understanding of the financial picture. But I think 
when you think about it that way, like this whole situation just kind of puts front offices in a weird spot. Um, obviously, a lot of them seized on the, you know, spending bonanza over the last week, which was very fun. But now they're all kind of just sitting there in limbo. And um, it's just it's it's interesting to me that, you know, we go into December Let's, let's say this lockout only lasts from December to January 1st, which who knows. But if that's the case, like, that's sort of like what I guess I would call like a minimal impact lockout. Right. But it still just puts everyone in an awkward position. <laughs> and, um, and, if, and the idea is to just, you know, put pressure on the players to make them accept a deal that they don't want to take. But it's just going to be a weird winter, I think. I think the funny thing with, you know, Major League Baseball's website basically being wiped of all, you know, of all references to active 40-man players. It's like, yes, maybe this is something they need to do for, you know, licensing and likeness issues, but um, it really kind of just drives home what it would be like to have a baseball without unique uh, fascinating players in it, you know, like you go to a team's roster tab and it just shows you like coaches and front offices. And then at the end of the day, like, I think there's been so such a shift in baseball fans to be sort of fans of front offices as, as well. But at the end of the day, like, that's not what baseball is and seeing, no. you know, Cardinals third baseman bobblehead night, like nobody <laughs> cared. Like that, that is, it's funny because nobody cares about a Cardinals third baseman. There have been many Car Cardinals third basemen who people have cared about. There's a Cardinals third baseman Nolan Arenado now who people care very much about. But then to see it phrased as Cardinals third baseman bobblehead night, it's like it, it to me, it just shines a very funny light on exactly what we're talking about in, you know, players providing a very unique skill to a very unique working environment. I don't, yeah. I don't think you can I don't think you can use very with unique, but we're just gonna go with it. Meg is probably gonna get so upset with me for that, but um. Oh she doesn't listen to the show, Jesus. <laughs> um I wanna ask you a question. I was thinking a lot about this this morning, um, thinking about what we talk about here and it, you know, this is obviously our first I I g I don't wanna get caught up in the language that I'm about to use here, but like work stoppage. I don't I know that's a weird this is the first time we've had a, a, a non-existent CBA and therefore a lockout and or strike since the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. um, this is not obviously not our first time. And I think in, in all previous situations like this, be it a lockout or a strike, the, the general tenor of, of fandom and media was very, very tilted towards um, favoring the owners um that that was a you know i mean that was a quarter century ago first of all and um you know and i and, and you know the big 80 strike was 40 years ago now but that was very much the time of i'm not saying this this doesn't still exist it's nothing's 100 zero but the overwhelming kind of uh attitude uh from both fans and media was that of the players are spoiled millionaires i would play the game for free you know that kind of that kind of world you certainly still see some of that stuff out there but I really do think, uh, and this is, you know, everything, you know, reflects everything around it, but 
just the 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 the, the tenor of this country in in a lot of ways over the last decade and maybe even more um precisely over the last even year and a half since covid started is that like we've started to see definitely a shift to oh wait it's the bosses who are the bad guys you know what i mean yeah and 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 wait a second and like billionaires man some of them are that god that 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 they're wait, they're bad people. They seem like bad people, and I and I wonder. And and it's you know, like I said, we we're half a day into this, and I don't think we're necessarily in a position. But I do think it's. I don't think the owners. I think the owners are walking into this thinking that they still have that that PR and fan mindset advantage that they had twenty five and forty years ago, and I don't think they're right. Yeah, I think a really interesting way to look. At some of the shift in sentiment in a different arena is like if you look at tech journalism now versus like five, six years ago, where it was just like fawning over Apple just for every C- product. CEO, you know? Just CEO worship. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, wow, Facebook bought Instagram. And now most tech coverage that I see is like Mark Zuckerberg is like literally Horrible like toppling person. democracies and we right. regret the way that we have covered him. So I, I – I think there's a big sentiment shift. I mean, I think it's really interesting to me, like, that a lot of reporters now in, in digital outlets have gone through, you know, union drives and, mm. you know, bargaining sessions. And I've never done that. I was in an editorial union at um, at Gawker Media when I was at Deadspin. And it was great because I got there after they had like finalized the CBA. So I didn't have to deal with any of the mess, but like, you know, you look at places like the ringer or sports illustrated where they are going through this now. And obviously there were editorial unions previously at newspapers, but um, I think there's just been sort of like a re radicalizing sentiment toward um, how unions can protect media workers over the last excuse me, like six, seven years. And so I think people have direct knowledge of this. I think things have just changed. But the thing that I can't really square is like, you know, we had that big John Deere strike. Um, I believe Amazon workers in Alabama are going to be allowed to vote vote again. Yeah, Amazon was, you know, found to have been operating in bad faith or manipulating the election. You know, Kellogg has been on strike for about two months. Like, there's a large labor movement in this country, and yet I think that's not um, getting any sort of attention in the national media, it's, though. It's, and yet somehow this work stoppage feels like completely separate from it. Mm-hmm. I've been like, you know, like I have friends who cover this, you know, or what's the connection here? And I'm like, there's just really not a connection. It just happens that baseball is having its first work stoppage since 1994 at a time when um, the idea of, of, of labor and what rights workers have is the sentiment is changing in the States, but I don't see a direct connection, which I think is a little bit funny. Yeah. I, I just, I, I, it'll be interesting. I, I just, but I don't, I think I don't, I just don't know what the level of it is, but I don't think they have, I don't think they have the, the the fans and the media behind them as much as they think they do. If they, if they think they have it at the same level they've had it in the past. Yeah, I. I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know what it was like in in 1994. I can make some assumptions. Um, anyway, I mean, I, it was it was very very almost overwhelmingly so. Like again, like the players are spoiled millionaires, which is crazy because they kind of are, but then their bosses are spoiled billionaires, and that's the right. you know. I, I mean, always they're yeah. Well, hold on. Let me let me back up. They're not all millionaires to start. True. Um, but even even the ones who are spoiled millionaires still play for spoiled billionaires. So I guess that's the difference. Yeah, I always say this, and I I, I I truly believe it. And it's just the money's there. The money's there. That's It's absolutely undebatable. The money is there. And so either the owners can get it or the players can get it. Choose your fighter. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, that, 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 that's how it is. Um, going forward, like, I, it's... I would be surprised. It's December second. I would be surprised if there's any talks whatsoever until the calendars flip. Yeah. Um, there's no leverage on either side right now. The players don't start losing paychecks until April, mm-hmm. and the owners don't really have. And it's only a minor revenue crunch um, come spring training. Um, the owners actually have more of a legal crunch in a way, in just the sense that they're legally obligated to play X number of spring training games via their the lease on the land or stadium. Um, and so there's no onus on anyone to get anything done in December. Um, I think I I wouldn't really worry about anything being in jeopardy until like February 1st. Mm -hmm. Um, they need a, I think teams need probably about a two week window logistically to get spring training started on time. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if, you know, if you say on, if they, you know, if, if the, the, the magical presser happens on February 1st and they say we come to an agreement, whatever that is, you could get going on time. But I honestly think even if you start on 3-1, you could still do it. And, and, um, if we end up in a world where spring training is shorter anyway, great teams, will, yes. play, teams and players, both teams and players mm-hmm. will love that. Um, and so we, we all know this is going to happen. I still, like, I wouldn't bet my life savings on it, but I'd, I'd bet a good chunk that the season starts on time and we have a full 162 next year. Yeah. I mean, I, that's the goal. And that's in everybody's best interest. Um, it's just interesting to think about what December is going to be like because I do think it's just going to be dark and quiet. I mean,. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting to see sort of how things have played out today. You know, you had Rob Manfred do like a brief presser where he covered some issues or covered some topics. Tony Clark said something like it would have been would have been nice to see the commissioner put as much thought into his proposals to the players as as he did putting into the this letter to the fans. <laughs> um, you know, the the players' side they're frustrated because. You know, they made they made an economic proposal to the league, I believe, on Tuesday, and the league did not make another economic proposal to them. And so, you know, seeing things in Manfred's letter, like we were forced to go to a lockout. I mean, if we want to get into semantics, sure, you can say that you had you felt you had no other option. You were forced to do this, but it it's very deliberately worded to um, make their choices seem more extreme than they were. And so I think we've already seen some frustration, you know, in the way that things are being conveyed, the way that things are being, um, twisted. And I'm curious, like how much, 
when when we'll start to see more leaking and sniping like we did last summer during yeah. the COVID negotiations because it's coming. Um, yeah, for sure. And and you know, it's interesting. I, I like five o'clock yesterday, I turned on MLB Network, and I guess I shouldn't have been disappointed. I should I, guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was just it was it was a nice reminder. Um, and I, I I tweeted this, but I'll say it again. Like I like a lot of what MLB Network does, and I like mm-hmm. a lot of the people on MLB Network. I genuinely do like a lot of those people. But boy, like the first fifteen minutes, which was about at that time the impending lockout, um, was a not so thinly veiled message of the owners have done everything they can do. It's all on the players right now. Um, well. <laughs> and it's a nice reminder that, of course, MLB Network, much like MLB.com, is owned by Major League Baseball. Um, and, and that's where they're going to go with it. And it's going to become, you know, a platform for them to get their message out. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I have felt, you know, since 2016 that, you know, major league baseball and the owners, I've felt they've typically been stronger in their messaging, uh, than the PA. I've, I've felt that there's, the PA could have been a lot more effective in their in their messaging at certain times. I think it's really interesting that we don't really hear from players a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I understand that they, you know, want to allow the PA to speak for them because that's really kind of what they do. But like at the end of the day, like nobody gives a crap about Major League Baseball Players Association. Like people care about. I mean, I said to someone yesterday that like <laughs> maybe the easiest way for the for the PA to really force you know, public sentiment in their favor is to like ask Shohei Otani to record a video and be like, I really hope I get to play baseball next year. Mm-hmm. Like who's, who's going to disagree with that? Um, I'm interested to see if individual players themselves who have fan bases, who have fans who buy their jerseys, uh, if, if they speak up more and like, obviously there are some very, there are some very talented and influential people in union leadership in Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole and Andrew Miller, um, Francisco Lindor. But like, to me, the, the, the players are the ones who people pay to see. And I'm curious how much we'll hear from them throughout this. Uh, um, we, we have seen like the Twitter, the mm-hmm. Twitter Avi change, yeah. but we have seen some players take to Twitter and, yes. and, you know, and, and I, I, and I think that's another interesting dynamic here. Obviously this is the first time we've had, we've had a situation like this in, in the social media age. Also, and, can we like shout out the former pirates greats, like Trevor Williams, uh, Joe Musgrove <laughs> and Jameson Tyone for getting the like blank Twitter avatars going like it's where where former Pittsburgh Pirates go the rest of the rest of the game will follow I think (laughs) and and Tyon had an interesting tweet um Mm -hmm. you know we talked about how the you know with this going on um he's not allowed to work out he's not allowed to rehab with the the Yankees rehab team Mm -hmm. meaning they're like their, their medical team um which again is another measure that LB has taken that is actually maybe um, I'm going to say maybe because I'm not a lawyer, but above and beyond what they had to do. Um, the NHL mm-hmm. had a work stoppage about a decade ago, and they allowed players who were um, coming back from uh, injuries related to the sport they play to continue to use the facilities, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's all these like weird gray areas, like like Cressy Sports. Um, yes. Cressy Sports is a huge rehab slash workout thing in in Palm Beach. Um, 
hundreds, literally hundreds of players who live in Florida use Cressy Sports. Um, but but Cressy himself is an employee of the New York Yankees. And like, yeah. can you can you go there? Like, I don't even know. Um, I asked about that a lot over the last few weeks because ultimately the the injured and rehabbing players, um, they were the ones who I was like really most concerned about this winter because they're the ones who I think feel the lack of um, access to staff and facilities the most directly. But uh, I never I never got a clear answer on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you That's know, not surprising just because like like. Like I said, like teams have been kind of flummoxed by what they were told in the last 12 hours, what they can and can't do. They didn't see it coming. Which, again, you know, like I, I mean, I should say, you know, Tyone was like making a joke about how he's just going to take off his walking boot. Like to Yankees mm-hmm. fans, like, I don't think he's going to do that. Like, so don't worry about that. But like, that's another thing where like, if you're a general manager and you have X amount of value, you know, invested in the or you know you're expecting something from your injured players in the next season uh and then you just have to like let them go dark i mean like a charlie morton who i'm sure has very good medical care and facilities this this winter whenever he's able to do something like uh i would be a little bit upset if i were a braves mm-hmm. front office staffer and i were like oh no our, charlie morton right, is our, just like rehabbing yeah. into the abyss yeah. exactly <laughs> You know, and another part that no one's talked about because it doesn't involve a physical injury, but but you know, teams as a whole have mm-hmm. put in a tremendous investment into into uh, mental health in the last few mm-hmm. years, um, with with teams of, of of whatever you want to call them, mental skills people, mental health people, um, and there are plenty of players who are utilizing those resources, and now those are cut off as well. Yeah, I mean, the good news is my understanding is that. Um... Obviously, this isn't as nice as having access to all sorts of medical care, whether mental or physical, through a club. But you know, players who are on, who are on the forty man will retain health insurance, and then players who are not on forty mans, I believe that they will have the option to cobra if the lockout persists past right with with, day. with with help from the PA from yeah. their from their fund. But, you know, it it really is just like. Everyone is caught in the middle because it is in, it is in everybody's best interest, including the clubs, including the front offices, including the, the owners who are um, the ones who are investing in a winning product. It is in their best interest for their players to be taken care of, whether it's the offseason or not. And, you know, bless the staff members who spent weeks making preparations for this outcome. But um, I guess we'll see where we are at in February. And I remember... Last last year, during the COVID shutdown, I wrote a story about, I think, the, the 81 Yankees um, and sort of what they did during during the midseason strike. Because mm-hmm. I remember years ago in a clubhouse, a former player who was then a broadcaster um, telling, a, telling a player about the 81 strike and how he didn't think they were coming back. And so he just, like, stopped working out or whatever. So, you know, now it's very different. Players don't. Players don't take really time off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they have, I guess, been given routines. But we saw last year with the shutdown, like players came back out of shape. Um, obviously, yeah. access to facilities was different then. But, you know, I, I think. And also what you just described, like a lot of players shut it down because they didn't think they were going to play. Exactly. So so come spring training, I mean, I know that it's always kind of a crapshoot. 
uh, with a lot of players for what you're going to get in spring training. But like, if this thing extends, if, if this lockout extends for January, like, um, what is spring training conditioning going to look mm-hmm. like is another question I'll have. And, and ultimately like, wow. I find the six week spring training exhausting and draining and too long. Uh, and just like this, like horrible appetizer for the like exhausting main course of the, of the regular season. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do want players to have the time they need to prepare for the season. So yeah, the timing sure. here is really important. And, and I have another gray area question, which is like, and this goes back to what, what Tyon tweeted. Like the New York Yankees trainers are employees of the New York Yankees. The New York Yankees mm-hmm. strength and conditioning coaches are employees of the New York Yankees. So they can't mm-hmm. talk to Tyon. The guy who did the surgery on Jameson Tyon is a contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not. He, he has his own private practice. He can get in touch with him, I assume. I would hope um, so. I, but then, like, can he report what happens back to the Yankees? I don't know. I don't Good know. question. I mean... Zach Britton had his UCL brace surgery done through uh, Dr. Neil Elitrosh. So mm-hmm. I assume that like, that's like an easy avenue and, but right. Neil's not, Neil's but, not an employee of the team. Yeah. But I think, I think Tyone may have had his ankle done through Chris Ahmad or if, or if somebody had, you know, a procedure right. done through a team uh, contractor. Yeah. That's, Oh, I just, I don't want anyone's rehab processes to be complicated uh, throughout this. Or compromised this, which, yeah, at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that to me, like, if, if it were not for that, I would almost kind of describe this lockout occurring at, you know, 12.01 a.m. on December 2nd as sort of negotiation eyewash. Um, mm-hmm. But there are a few areas where I'm like, no, this this actually is pretty damn impactful for now. And um, well, I guess I appreciate that you know we are doing it at a time when there's not like this enormous obvious disruption of of games and, and players and whatnot. Um, I, I mean, I've never I've I've never covered something like this. I. I don't remember the 94 strike, so I'm interested to see where this goes, just like everyone else. So, obviously, uh, we'll, we'll have more coverage of this as, as things to talk about, because the show's going to keep happening, folks. I'm sorry. Um, but before the lockout happened, um, baseball lost their goddamn mind, mm-hmm. and with a, with a a unprecedented free agent frenzy um, as um, you know, billions of dollars were spent on player contracts by the owners who have no money. And um, I want to go through some of these. I had no idea how to organize this because it's such a, it was so absolutely insanity. I, all I did was kind of split it up by divisions. Um, and I just want to, I, I kind of want to start, this is, this is, we're going to start right in your wheelhouse here. Um, mm-hmm. American League East. And I have lists of what the Red Sox did and what the Jays did and what the Rays did. And the Orioles didn't do anything. And that's not surprising. But I don't have anything at the Yankees. You mentioned earlier you think they were kind of maybe um, waiting for guidance on, on how the, the, the new world's going to look. But, I mean, are you surprised it's kind of like a big fat zero for the Yankees right now? Um, 
well, they re-signed Jolie Rodriguez, please. Um, we, we have, they tendered, there, there's they, one. They tendered Gary Sanchez. They did. They did tender everyone. Oh, damn it. How did I fall into that trap? I hate saying someone gets tendered. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I'm maybe not so surprised with the Yankees as I'm, I guess I'm just still a little bit surprised that not everyone operated with the Yankees. I think if I, if I'm looking at the Yankees, what I'm surprised by is that like they did not jump in when they saw that the, you know, off season bonanza or that the off season was not going the way that maybe everyone anticipated or a lot of people anticipated. Um, you know, there's still a lot of off season left. There's still a lot of free agents or trade acquisitions that they can now spend. And a lot of really good players. <laughs> yeah, they can they can now just spend the next. X amount of weeks evaluating them over and over and over, I guess. Um, I'm not, I'm not super surprised, but you know, I feel like every day when I was sitting there staring at my computer, I was like, well, you know, they could do something right. (laughs) And then no. (laughs) And, and for the, for the most part, the AL East, obviously one of the, one of the power divisions, didn't do much. There's a lot of like smaller mm-hmm. one and two year deals. The biggest deal was Kevin Gossman to the Jays, um, signing basically the deal they offered Robbie Ray. And the other one was we talked about this last week, the Franco extension to to Tampa. But other than that, it's just kind of like guys that they, it's a lot of ex Yankees. Paxton going to Boston on like a one year deal with all sorts of incentives and options, and Corey Kluber going to the Rays on a one year deal with all sorts of incentives. Um, not that excited and and. Like far more money was spent elsewhere, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's you know for Boston and New York not to be the big players here, I think still was was kind of surprising and and it's you know the Yankees didn't do anything. The Yankees are also and you would know this well they they play things very close to the vest. Mm-hmm. Um, like things don't you know the the, the uh, you know I think we knew every time Max Scherzer had a phone call with the Mets. Um, someone was tweeting about like the, the the Yankees just don't operate. I'm also convinced at times the only two people even know what's going on with the Yankees. Like it's Cashman and Fishman, and that's it. Yeah. Um, the American League Central is mildly more interesting. Just in Javi Baez getting six one forty somehow by the Tigers. Um, I think that's just kind of them putting their flag in the ground and saying, "Hey, we're big players now." Um, the White Sox, you know, signed Kendall Graveman and re up Lurie Garcia, getting three years. Good for him. The the Buxton extension when the Twins finally got done. Uh, the big news was in the American League West, yes. where the Rangers of Texas <laughs> lost their minds, um, and that's great. Like I don't don't take that as an insult. I think look, I, teams who are bad spending money to be good is a really good thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for it. But Corey Seager. And Marcus Simeon are the new middle infield for a total commitment of half a billion dollars. Um, on a lower level, they signed John Gray for the rotation and um, and Cole Calhoun in the outfield. They're not suddenly a competitor in this division, but it sets them up to be one down the line. Yeah, I mean, John Daniels really freaking went for it. It was like it was like Lindsay having a having a bad day and walking by a freaking uniglow in there um i don't i i think what's interesting to me about the al east is like or yeah no al west sorry um east coast biased i know um always i don't 
I don't know what the Mariners are doing. The Mariners seem like they're going to try to improve. I mean, I guess I understand why the A's didn't begin their modified teardown or whatever they plan on doing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that they didn't get in on any of that action. Um, I, I just, you know, I don't know what the power balance is in the AL West right now. And didn't, I think the Mariners and the Rangers are just very, very interesting. But then, okay, a question I have is like, why do we know why Justin Verlander's deal with the Astros? I was going to bring that up, but no. Is, I, is, that, I, is that something that we should be concerned about? Or I'm super excited about it, even though like the chances of that, of something weird happening is probably 2%. But I'm, yeah, so obviously the, 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 the it was, I think it was more than a week ago, it broke that Justin Verlander was, was going like to sign with the Astros. Ago. Yeah. For a weird, for way more than people thought, yeah, for like 25 and 25, like 50 mil guaranteed for two years of Justin Verlander uh, approaching 40 and coming off of TJ. Um, and it was like, oh, look at that. And that's surprising. And it never got announced. There, You never got the, the the tweet from the team saying we're bringing back Justin Verlander and the press release like that never happened. The deal is not official and it's two weeks. And it's not like, you know, this happened with the Marlins who, who, um, extended Alcantara mm-hmm. and it got broke like five days because like he was in the DR and he had to get a physical and he had to so mm-hmm. you had to get him out of the DR and you had to get him in the States and give him a physical like I understand that that I get it takes time yeah. like but two weeks for Justin Verlander who's in Florida by the way um like he's right there like he's not he's in Florida and you know a, a an 11 minute uber drive from the West Palm complex the Astros do their thing at um I don't know what happened there. And I, I, I'm not saying the deal's like gone squirrely or anything like that. I just don't know what's happened. And I am as someone who I don't know, like anyone like, you know, roots for a good story. Um, I'm hoping there's one there. Cause it would be, it would, it would become, it would be a lot of fun. You know, I, I would, I, chances are it's okay, but I have no idea what happened. There. It's very strange. I would guess that there would be um a fairly high percentage of the people listening to this podcast had not realized that that was not official or that is somehow mysteriously in limbo. I think between um, <laughs> between the drama of the lockout and like Heim Bloom's crazy, crazy shopping, you know, like last minute shopping spree last night and a number yeah. of other things. Like I think the fact that the Verlander thing is not official has kind of gone unnoticed. <laughs> um, it's very strange. And now it's... Uh, I mean, now it's just going to be like stuck in my head and kind of looming over this off season. I mean, I, 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 I hope whatever the holdup is, like, I hope it's, you know, not serious. Like, I hope he's, you know, I hope he's okay and healthy. Yeah, for um, sure. I, I, last thing I want to be is a bad physical thing. I hope, I hope just, I just hope, hope something weird happened. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I go through this every year when the Yankees like agree to turn Brett Gardner and then like wait, like what feels like six weeks to sign him because they just need to like make an, make a bunch of roster moves and they're like, okay, right. well, we'll just be there. Um, doesn't feel like that situation here. No, I'd like this. So right now their biggest move is, 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 you know, Hector Neris for two years. Good reliever. Um, I, I think the Mariners are in such a strange place. They signed Robbie Ray. They trade for Adam Frazier, mm-hmm. a really good player. They were so over their skis this year in terms of just kind of luck, like just pure yeah boring like pythagorean luck that i think even if they're better next year and i think they will be better next year it's still gonna be hard for them to win 90 games again Who and people go oh they went backwards and like well they actually kind of went forwards but it just didn't they weren't as lucky 
Who are their clubhouse veteran types? Like Mitch Hanniger now? Yeah, Mitch Hanniger is kind of, yeah, that is that dude. Um, I, I think Robbie Ray has a presence mm-hmm. to him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, I would, yeah, I would love to see them sign. I mean, as pretty much a lot of this, um, <laughs> labor tension is over baseball's veteran middle class. Like I'd love to see the Mariners like acquire a couple like middle-class veteran players because yeah, they seem, um, kind of full of potential, but like a little bit young and raw. I would say. Well, yeah, a guy like Mark Canna would have been perfect yeah, there, yeah, for, that, for those great. kind of purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And they're supposedly do they want to be players in the in some of the big names out there. It's just it is tough to get guys to go to Seattle sometimes. Yeah, I guess I hadn't realized that until a friend of mine who's from Washington State said that like players have like a very weird time adjusting to the Pacific Northwest lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And um I hadn't considered that and he was like, Yeah, we always gotta try to get like the guys from California. Um, like we we can't yeah. get the Texas guys to come to Seattle. We can get the we can get the California guys. Um, and the, then the travel is a huge pain in the ass. Oh my god! Yeah, I, you know, I don't think people realize like how far Houston and Seattle are from each other. It's really far. It, like, I take an Amtrak to like Baltimore and Boston, and I'm in the same division. Like, it's like a one hour flight to Toronto. Um, whereas like. The Mariners and Astros are basically like doing a journey around the globe to go play right. each other. To play a divisional series. Yeah. Baffling. Uh, um, National League East, everything mm-hmm. begins and ends with the Mets. Um, <laughs> it started with uh, a fun soap opera with Stephen Matz spurning them and Steve Cohen getting very angry about it because I don't think he really understands how this shit works. Um, but he learned some lessons from it and then went nuts. They signed um, Starling Marte, Mark, the previously mentioned Marcana, uh, Eduardo Escobar, and then the biggie, three one thirty to Max Scherzer, who, if I remember right, kind of did not go to them at the t- trade deadline, like had them on his no-whatever list. Um, mm-hmm. and that, but now he is uh, a, a member of the Mets next year and, and for three years in a huge AAV. And... And not to, not to go back to, to subject number one of the segment, but he then made some very interesting comments at the presser about the lockout mm-hmm. um, and about how they're looking to, they want a more competitive environment. They want one where teams are um, incentivized to compete. And I thought he made a lot of really positive comments that I think is also going to kind of help their cause PR was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what's so interesting with the Mets is like, they obviously made some really great moves here before the lockout but i'm curious like what they do to kind of like bolster their roster after this i mean the the, the depth part yeah yeah the, the depth like and this is what i think is interesting like you know max is late 30s you're committing a lot of money to him but like he's still pretty much like as close to a sure thing as you're gonna find um so I'm curious to see how the Mets continue to improve. Um, I think it's exciting to see this. And uh, there is something, um, I almost find it a little bit endearing to see Steve Cohen try to figure out (laughs) the business of baseball (laughs) in real time. Like, you know, I mean, a lot of people are confused by it and, and it's nice to see someone else confused by it. And, you know, I, I mean, I think maybe airing out an agent on Twitter is like, not how you should do it or whatever i mean i enjoyed it but like it's 
you know, everyone in this business is a fucking expert in everything. And Steve Cohen's kind of like <laughs> learning these rookie mistakes in public. And I kind of like it, you know, like it's, it's a little bit revealing to me. So I appreciate that. And I, I do really relate to the idea of like getting spurned by a situation in that way. And then just being like, screw it. I'm getting Max yeah. Scherzer. Um, right. So like, as always, I think the Mets are the most like relatable team in baseball and that like their whole vibe could just be any human walking down the street. So um, it's nice to see that like continuing, I guess. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like it's, you know, whatever you think about Steve Cohen as a person, like his, whatever his, his, however you want to grade his, his business acumen, um, no matter how positive or, or, or glowing you want to be about his business acumen, it does not apply perfectly to baseball. Baseball is, is an incredibly unique business. It is a one of a kind business. And, what he's learned there doesn't apply perfectly to baseball and, and he can't expect it to operate like most businesses do because it's not like most businesses. It's, um, it's probably almost like opposite, right? Because like the whole yeah. thing with baseball is you're supposed to be sort of non-emotional and, and the joke is that you're if you're hyper-emotional, you go work in football, whereas I'm sure running a hedge fund or whatever the hell Steve Cohen does, I'm sure that's a very emotional job. He's um, probably learning how to like hot and cold those types of reactions. Yeah, and it's just it's like back to the mass thing. I was I, I was talking to someone the next day about that, and we were just kind of joking about it. And he said, he said, "Let me ask you a question." When an agent said he would keep you in the loop and get back to you, how many, how often were you kept in the loop and they got back to you before they made a decision to go elsewhere? I was like, I don't know, fifty fifty. He's like, yeah, that feels right, you know. And that's about what you're gonna get, you know. Sometimes they're just gonna disappear on you. Um, you just, and you just go, okay, and you don't really have time to get you just move on to the next one, which is you know eventually what they did with with the Scherzer deal worked out just fine for them um it was good to see the marlins like the rangers kind of say like hey you know what here's a radical philosophy let's spend some money and try to make the roster better um no you know not huge splashes but the the alcantara extension is really smart uh they trade mm -hmm. for a gold glove catcher uh a really nice player in joey wendell um they they brought in avasail garcia like they're not factors or anything like that, but just like get better. It's it's nice to see bad teams saying, let's spend some money and get better. I loved the Jacob Stallings and Joey Wendell moves. Um, yeah, those are both I'm, great ads. I mean, I've watched Joey Wendell so much, you know, as the Rays <laughs> play the Yankees all the time. And like, I just like think he's such a fantastic, well-rounded ball player. Like he's like the type of player where like, I'm not going to look into like the deeper production numbers because I just think he's valuable. Um, oh, and I think, yeah. you know, I, I think, ugh, I mean, a lefty versatile infielder who hits for con oh, just, it seems like a great ad for the Marlins. I mean, Wendell is obviously such like a good, a good clubhouse guy, a good, you know, standard of not to go full jeets here, but, you know, playing the game the right way. <laughs> and then you have, you know, Stallings working with, working with a young and really talented pitching staff. And I just think it's. You know, it's, they're not, yeah, like you said, they didn't get Max Scherzer or Marcus Semien or whatever, but I think they made some pretty damn smart moves. And I'm, I'm interested to see how, you know, Avi Garcia works with Marcus Timms, who um, I covered with the Yankees. Of course, yeah. Um, it, it was, it was interesting because I, I really did think that the Stallings and Wendell things would be very good for the Yankees. And it's mm. funny that. Yankee South made them and I'm curious to see how good the Marlins are because I can't really 
project that for now, but like, it'd be nice to see them uh, be pretty competitive, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right about Stallings. The Yankees, that would have been perfect for them. Um, and then, you know, no surprising to see, you know, the Nats kind of bow out of the week. That's not surprising. Mm-hmm. But the Phillies, who have been rumored with a lot of players, like all they have to show for it is Corey Knable for one year. Um, and the Braves are defending World Series champions. All they did was sign um, what's left of Kirby Yates for two years. Um, and so, uh, Freddie like the, Freeman, <laughs> like what's what's well, the deal there? What's happening? I honest, I honestly think that something. Let's. let's I'm going to get all conspiracy minded with you. I can do it on Verlander. I think something weird's going on there. I really think the Braves um, misread the room. And thought like, oh, Freddie Freeman, iconic player, we'll get him back. And 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 Freeman's is a free agent, and free agents have the right to behave however they want. He's saying, I want to get paid what I'm worth, and if it's here, that's great. And if it's not, he's not from, he's not Dansby Swanson. He's not playing for his hometown team, right? Um, you know, it's it's he's saying, I'm Freddie Freeman. I'm awesome. I want to get paid like Freddie Freeman. Um, and if you do it, I'll be happy to come back. If someone else does it, I'll be happy to go there. Um, and so, uh, I think this, I think, I think that, I just think the the Braves kind of misread the table, if you will. Yeah. I would say the Braves need Freddie Freeman more than Freddie Freeman needs the Braves. Um, Yeah. That's a great way to put it. For sure. It it is sort of nice to see like, uh, you know, a, a local superstar who hit free agency actually behaving really like he is on the open market. I mean, I, I don't mean that dismissively. Like, I mean, I think. I, I think probably the best outcome for baseball is that Freddie Freeman remains with the Braves. It's it's just nice to see or whatever, but like it's it's nice to see um, someone not just backing down in that sense. So and, yeah, no, I'm fascinated to see where it ends up. I I I think it's probably fifty fifty right now. I just thought that that would be resolved so quickly. I think I think the Braves did too, and that's then and, and and that steered their behavior in a bad way i think i mean i think i think the braves would have had to have sucked it up and said you know they we should have <laughs> we should have paid freddie before the season uh mm-hmm. and gone and with they it. tried yeah but i yeah I, ju- I just thought this would have been done by now um national league central's been one of the more quiet ones um mm-hmm. We talked about Stephen Mass, the Cardinals, the biggest contract actually given up by the Cubs uh, yesterday. It's uh, Marcus Stroman, three years, a little over 70, um, with an opt-out after two. Um, the Reds are like the Nats are just sitting this out, and the Reds have already put out plenty of messages that we have no money. Um, all the Brewers, their defending division champions, did was sign a backup catcher, Pedro Severino. Um, I mean, even the Pirates spent more on their catching, sending, planning Roberto Perez to catch for them. Uh, to replace Stallings, um, but not much going on there. Um, they're just not big players. And then the National League West, the Giants did what the Giants do, which is sign starters for 10 to $15 million a year. Um, mm-hmm. Wood, Cobb, DiSclafini. Um, and, you know, of course, by signing Alex Cobb, he'll now win 16 games, have a 290 area next year for them. Um, the Dodgers lost a lot of players. They lost Max Scherzer. Um, I know they kind of wanted to keep him. Uh, they lost Corey Seager. I know a lot of people thought going in he'd probably stay a Dodger. That didn't happen either. Um, they did keep Chris Taylor on a four-year deal. Uh, are they suddenly players for other bigger name players? I've never heard them connected to Carlos Correa, and I don't know why they wouldn't want Carlos Correa. Where is Clayton Kershaw? He's going to the Rangers. I mean, that would be like kind of nice, right? Wouldn't like, it? 
like uh, the thing for me is like if if I am a fan of player agency. However, if, you know, a, a career long player is going to go to a second team uh late in his career, I I always like oh. it to be the hometown team, but like we haven't really heard much smoke about Nothing. Nothing at all. I mean, okay, so so the rule is that let me make sure I have this straight. The rule is that if a player was on a 40-man roster last year, they can sign a minor league deal, but not with any invitation to spring training or something like that, correct? I, I'm baffled on this one. Say okay. it again. So- I, I read this somewhere, but so I'm curious sort of how the Giants and Farhan will navigate the minor league portion of the offseason, because at least they can right. do some work there. Oh, are you talking about during the lockout? Yes. Yes, that's correct. So they, yes. they can you can sign a straight minor league deal, but it, yes. there cannot be a big league component to it. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and then if they, I'm interested to see. Um, it's important that, to know, like you could have that side conversation, even though it would be against the rules, and go look. We're gonna look. Hey, Lindsay, we're gonna sign you this minor league deal. It's AAA. It's twenty five grand a month. And then once this is all solved and and we have a season again, we'll amend the contract to include an NRI. I mean, if you're like a moderate veteran player, you could also kind of assume that, right? I mean, mm. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, teams are bringing it. I mean, the, the, <laughs> your average spring training roster in February is 60-something. Yes. Right. You can just, yeah, look, hey, we can't put it in there, but you know what's going to happen, you know. Um, yeah, but yeah, you can't put it in a contract, though. Yeah, the, the Dodgers situation is going to be interesting. But then also, the Rockies are still trying allegedly which i think is good which i think is good mm-hmm. um and the padres have like your annual yes. winner of the offseason yes. the padres yes. um have done them i mean they signed a couple of relievers but like they haven't been big players here at all no the whole industry goes bonanza and the padres kind of like sit there chilling like i'm a little bit disappointed like <laughs> you want yeah you want preller to go nuts about something i i want to know that i know what to expect and that was not what to expect um mm-hmm. i think the situation with the Rockies saying that they want to be in contention is nice, especially as we're talking about a work stoppage where um, quality of competition is one of the big things. I just don't necessarily know what the Rockies need to do to be interesting in that division. Um, I guess. I, I mean, what do you think? Like, is there any hope of the Rockies doing well? No. At this point? Okay. <laughs> Cool. I, mean, I do think. I mean, I think they'll. I don't think they'll be able to land any of the big names. But I do. I, but again, I think it, it goes back. They have to do. They have to do like one of those starting deals. Like they need to sign mm-hmm. a mid-range free agent to a decent deal just to show the industry that what they're doing. And and like the Rangers went over the top on this. And and like even if you think the Seager and Semyon deals were too big for you comfortably, like it's kind of the the way I wrote it was like this is their price of admission to the big boys club. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of have to like go over the top to get someone to get come there first in order to kind of put your flag down that hey we're not fucking around anymore yeah um and and i don't i don't think like a guy like chris bryant is where you start that i think it's it's kind of that's kind of step two um the the rangers were able to skip that step and and get those two big deals done i don't think that works in colorado necessarily i guess the nl west just remains a little bit baffling to me and i continue to um not have any clue what uh 
what it's going to be like. Um, so let's get away from the player second and just talk about the general week of signings. Um, you know, we've, we've alluded to this a few times. Um, I expected it to be not silent, but certainly quieter than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, the way uh, one GM put it to me was that the level of insanity, I expected insanity, but this level of insanity was not something I anticipated. Yes. Um, and, you know, I guess my, my question is, what does this mean? And I obviously the the impending doom of a lockout played a huge role in what we just saw. But it was weird to see this mixed message post lockout of Major League Baseball saying, you know, I don't know what the players are complaining about. We just spent one point seven billion and then you know, thirty seconds later it's like, well then you know they're making these things that we can't afford. So yes. I I it's 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 a you know, which is a strange dichotomy. Um but like why did teams do this and what does this mean? I mean, I think it's so disingenuous to be like, well, look at all the spending that they've done. Yeah, actually, we are looking at the spending. Yeah, um, look we're at looking, it. <laughs> we're looking at that part. But we were also never really talking about, you know, the, the top 5% of free agents here. Like, that's just, that's just not the thing. The, the PA's goals are to move compensation back toward when players create the bulk of their value. Like... Max Scherzer is a motherfucking unicorn, and that's nice for him. Uh, but if everyone were Max Scherzer, this world would be a very scary, different place. Uh, we're not talking about you know twelve hundred, or I guess it's more now, uh, or no twelve hundred Max Scherzers. So, right. uh, I mean, I'm I'm very curious, like. I mean, it doesn't help that I guess front office people can't talk to media anymore or whatever, but like I'd be very interested in the mechanisms of of a club seeing this start to seeing this like swell of you know moves starting to build and then like quickly adjusting their plans. Like didn't Jerry Depoto say that like the Robbie Ray thing came together very quickly? Um right. or at what point did John Daniels, like, turn this car around and go get Marcus Semien. Um, I'd, I'd be very curious to know, like, how much, like, quick adaptation was happening here. And if it's just, like, you know, is there very much, like, a fear that if if they don't go out and get Semien, that he's going to be, that he's going to be gone? Or is it actually taking advantage of a market that is um, inherently different from what it is in, I guess, a quote-unquote normal, normal. offseason? Right. And, and it's, you know, guys got paid, and but it, it did point to like one of the issues of the union, which is just that teams have adopted a stars and scrubs mm-hmm. attitude towards roster construction in the sense that, um, and I've said this before, it and you know, again, everything mirrors everything. It, it's the eradication of the middle class. Like the, you know, I remember, you know, I don't know what my second or third year with the Astros, Jed Lowry signs a three times eight. The three times eight doesn't exist anymore. You yeah. know that that just doesn't exist. Like the three one thirty exists. And even, you know, the nearest 217 deal, so $8.5 million a year for a good reliever, like teams employ this and they, they you know, you have like your three relievers making six plus million and then you have five relievers making 600. Yeah. Um, and that's how it, it's this, it's that, it's that, the way they're rolling that out, I think that, that is, is what is, is a concern for the union. Yeah. My, my first year covering the Yankees, they had Neil Walker 
Um, mm-hmm. And so Neil Walker sort of like my go-to mental example of the like middle-class veteran, um, you know, or even just, just the middle-class in general, like seeing the value there and seeing the, you know, lack of consideration that a lot of very good players who yes are not you know the the premium tier players or the club control types um it's it's just a little bit depressing and i guess that's what i mean by something like you know how the mariners should be in on guys who can help sort of like develop their clubhouse um Mm -hmm. or develop their you know help their team mature um I think this is just something that's kind of getting lost is that it kind of in terms of the union's position position, I think like this big spending bonanza, like it doesn't actually represent what they are trying to change. Um, I think it's, I think spending bonanza is more illustrative of the ownership position than it is of the player's position. Right. Um, that's a lot of baseball talk. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about another World Series, the World Series of Poker with Brandon Shaq Harris. You listen to a great song from Rid of Me, so stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to take a baseball break since we're going to have a very long baseball break, it looks like, and our special guest has nothing to do with baseball, but while most of you were watching the World Series, this person was playing in the World Series of poker, that is. He is a professional poker player. He has two bracelets to his name. Uh, He just finished the 2021 World Series where he finished in the money, I think, nine times with his best finishes being in the $10,000 horse championship. And because, of course, because he plays weird games, the $10,000 limit two seven low ball triple draw, he is joining us. And it's important to note, I have won a pot limit Omaha hand from him and therefore via the transitive property, I'm a better poker player than he is. And joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in Las Vegas, Nevada, it's Brandon Shaq Harris. Brandon, what's up, dude? Hey, thanks for having me. It was nice to hear these things because, like, it's such a blur. I, I don't remember where, how, how I did and what. <laughs> and, and, like, Pot Limit Omaha is supposed to be my best game, so you might, like, just be the best in the world. I'm just going to use that claim from now on. Um, I, I kind of want to start with, with, the, with the present and move backwards. Um, you just finished the, the World Series, but you were not able to finish the World Series because something happened. What happened? Uh, in order to play or participate in the World Series of Poker as a player, uh, you have to get bats, um, and you go through like a the clear app and get you know get approved. Um, in spite of that, uh, a whole bunch of us wound up catching the Kobe around the last two weeks of WSOP. So I wound up sitting out. The dealers um, uh, do not have to be vaccinated uh, as part of the union protocol, I think. Um, uh. I, don't, I don't know. And, um, and people are like, people who want to watch, there is no like due diligence, you know, people are kind of, spectators kind of come and go as they please. So uh, you're exposed to a bunch, uh, so a bunch of us got it, and um, I got it the day of my favorite event. I, I played these weird games, and there's one game called Raz, um, which is, of course, the wackiest because it has two Zs in it. Uh, naturally, the, the weirdest. Uh, and there's a, a small $1,500 buy-in Raz event, and there's a $10,000 Raz event. The small one I missed because I was in a different event, and the big one... Uh, was the one I was looking most forward to, uh, and I tested positive that day, so I missed missed my two Z's event. Are Are you okay? Did you get sick? Yeah, but it felt like how I would normally feel at the end of World Series. Like these, I think people associate World Series of Poker with the main event, which is on TV, but uh, it begins at the end of September and lasts until the last week of November. Uh, well, it did this year. Usually it's, it's happens during the summer, but this was a, a fall edition. Um, and there are usually a hundred or so events. Uh, there's one at 11 a.m. and then there's one, a second one. So usually there's like a no limit holding one at 11 a.m. and another one at a three p.m. for the, the more obscure games uh and every day lasts about 12 hours and each event lasts at least three days so my schedule had about usually has about like 50 events that i i will play if i'm not not in one or another um and i wound up playing 
like 29, which is kind of the average. So you just make a whole schedule of events you'd like to play. And if you bust out of one, there's always another one you can kind of jump in. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I got a good two months or a month and a half worth of, of play. Uh, I, I, so I was exhausted by the end of it. Like my, my brain is always fried. Everything just kind of like you just start sacrificing your health in every single way to preserve your mental, uh, stamina. So gained like 20 pounds. I mean, I'm usually really diligent about my diet and exercise and I'm really into Muay Thai and stuff. And I, I do it like daily. Um, but, uh, by the end of this, like gain 20 pounds and you're just eating out of convenience and like the, the worst food and at 2 AM and shit. And yeah, it's, it's rough. So, uh, it just, it, yeah, I was exhausted and it, I would usually be exhausted and then headache, usually have a headache, don't sleep, usually don't sleep. So nothing really out of the ordinary. So, I, mean, I first of all, how many, you said a lot of, like, how many players got COVID from this outbreak? Uh, the weird game community. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's usually called the mixed game community, I guess. Um, so the mixed game community is kind of a, a small group. There, there are about a hundred or so uh, pros who are in kind of every event when it comes to the non no limit hold'em events. Uh, and and I'm I'm only kind of familiar with what happened in our little group. Uh, but I think it it was mostly our, our group that, that kind of got hit. Um, some of the guys in the big cash games that exist in the casinos on the strip got it and sat out and then um, and there is some spillover from the cash games to these uh, events like for instance i mean this is i guess kind of tangential but like there is one really great player named daniel zach and he plays like the biggest cash games and he also has a whole bunch of bets when it comes to uh like winning player of the year for these series whatever so we were playing a uh ten thousand dollar buy-in triple draw event and on the side, he was playing a cash game on his phone <laughs> with another player who was in the tournament. And, and every hand that they played um, was worth more than a $10,000 buy-in. Right. So they're just playing hand after hand after hand of like, yeah, for tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, but a bunch of the cash game guys got it. Uh, and then or a few of the cash game guys got it and sat out immediately. And then... Um, I know of at least five people who for sure got in sat out and I'm sure a lot of, yeah, yeah. Uh, a bunch of people have, have bets for winning player of the year and I'm sure they just, they were exposed and still continue to play, you know, uh, poker players are inherently selfish. Uh, a lot of them are. So, you know, you're, you're in a game where you're trying to take somebody's money and, and make it your own. Um, so a lot of people will, you know, not say anything just play and whatever so i'm sure a bunch of people got it so can you talk about like kind of the physical aspect of playing in the world series just because i know from talking to you you're playing 13 hours of poker a day and i've seen these people and i don't necessarily think of them as, as athletes but it does take a physical strain on these people like like how do people who are in not great shape deal with playing poker 13 hours a day uh i i also don't see 
poker players as athletes. And I, don't see, <laughs> I don't see it as a sport either. Um, and I don't think you need to be in any great shape to endure sitting down and playing for 13 hours a day. Uh, I think it just takes a lot of mental energy in general. Like, I think these people will probably not live like for like very long because they're <laughs> eating like terrible food and like, I, you know, they're a product of your envi environment and your health suffers that way. But, um, for me, also your, your processor is like subjective for me, like, and, and, and the level of play is, is relative to like some people have, they make very basic decisions or they, they don't put themselves in very difficult spots. They fold a lot of questionable hands. So, uh, so they have pretty black and white decisions. I like to play. I don't like folding. That's not fun for me. So I play a lot of weird hands and subsequently find myself in a lot of weird situations. So, um, my puzzle is a little more complex. And then, uh, the bigger, like, I also like to put a lot of pressure on people. So these pots are really big. So, you know, when you, when you, when you play this, this style of play, it just takes a lot out of you. And also different games require different processing power. And, uh, and some games I'm better at than others. And the ones that I'm not so good at, um, might be the ones where you have to recalibrate information after every bet. Uh, and it really takes a lot out of you when it's not like your, your normal, your, your easy game or whatever. So I don't think if you're in bad shape or whatever, you know, it, it's just, the, it's just the, the biggest thing is when you're playing world series of poker, you don't have time to, you have time to either exercise or sleep, you know, you, you have 10 minute breaks every two hours, sometimes 15, 15, if you're lucky, there's no dinner break unless, uh, it's a day two. It depends on the, the event for your 10 or 15 minute uh, break. Um, and you know, like for personally, I don't talk to anybody during these breaks. I just go lay on a ramp and close my eyes and just try to, um, recharge my battery a little bit, but there's no time to cook for myself. There's no time to go to the gym. Uh, I, I went there once that was, and I ran, ran into Sean Strickland. If you're, anyone watches, uh, UFC stuff, that was interesting. <laughs> I wound up sparring Sean Strickland like a month and a half away from doing any sort of like Muay Thai activity. Uh, so that was a, that was a car wreck. Um, yeah, there's just no time to do any, any workouts or cook for yourself or anything. So you're just trying to sleep whenever you can. Brandon, all my, all my friends are around from out of, I'm sorry. Like, oh, no, no, go all, ahead. All my friends come from out of town. It's really great having everyone there. But like, I literally had, I've had like two dinners and like 10 years worth of World Series of Poker. There's just like no time for anything. So. Once, once the World Series of Poker is over, what do you do to kind of like reset? Uh, I guess physically, but more because we talk about this in baseball a lot, you know, like how guys structure their off season to hopefully give themselves rest, but also keep themselves in shape for the next 
season? Like, what do you need to do to keep yourself, uh, to give yourself that refresh physically, but also mentally? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, um, like there are a million tangents to go from here as well. I, I don't really identify myself uh, with poker, which is why like it doesn't bother me. Like poker players shit talk each other all the time, and I, I don't care because this is not my identity. Um, it it just, it doesn't bother me. Um, and in turn, like I when I'm I, I like to take very long reprieves from playing. But that does exist. So I, I was playing like a year and a half uh, straight, like studying and grinding. And then I took five months off right before World Series started and had it started. I realize this isn't a question. Sorry, I'll, I'll get there. Sorry about that. But, <laughs> um, but uh, like had World Series started a month and a like the, the year and a half when I was grinding really intensely, I would have felt like so on top. I would have felt like a complete world beater on, and, and I'm really hard on myself. Um, but I just got, I just wanted to do a bunch of Muay Thai and, uh, art stuff and music stuff and take a little break. Um, and then world series started and it definitely took a bit to kind of, it took probably a good week to really settle in. Um, and now that it's over, there's a lot of damage control. Uh, the weight stuff bothers me and all the things that kind of pile up when you're playing. Um, you know, I've wanted, I've been wanting to talk to you guys for a while and then friends and family and everyone always comes to Vegas. Everyone's always in town and I'm always like, no, I'm busy, but those relationships need to be nurtured. Uh, I haven't seen my dog in two, you know, two months. Uh, just, uh, there's a whole bunch of damage control that, that needs to happen. Uh, and and you're so you're still exhausted for you, you want to sleep for a week straight and then you get to all the pressing things that need to be taken care of and then uh and yeah you don't want to lose your like stroke or whatever uh so it's definitely a balancing act and i'm kind of an obsessive so i have a difficult time uh with that but I just kind of mr magoo it and hope hope I can stay on top of things. And then once World Series comes around, I'll just cram really hard again. And, and, and again, since we do play all the weird games, it's like 20 games you have to be like somewhat adept at uh, or not too bad at, at least. So it, there's just a lot, really. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that really answered the question. It's, it's fucking hard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's really I mean, hard, and, and there's so much more to life than poker, so... It it sounds to me like sort of how it feels to be in baseball in September and October. Um, Kevin obviously gets that. Um, yeah. What, what happens to me at the end of every Yankees postseason run is I, like, go home, and then I have, like, this immediate adrenaline crash, and then, mm -hmm. like, sleep for four days, but it's, like, yeah. a very distinct adrenaline crash before I can, like peel myself like out of bed or off the couch and then I try to do things like immediately like go buy a book or go to the museum or think about anything that is not uh baseball and yeah. so I'm I'm curious do you also get that big adrenaline crash because it's one of the craziest physical sensations I experience every October and it scares me every time <laughs> mm, that's interesting and yeah you guys have insane seasons like that's kind of cool to hear uh, how you 
how you recover from that. Uh, it, adrenaline dumps. No, because I feel like everything's really in limbo for poker. Uh, I have a lot of accounting that I have to still figure out once the dust settles. Uh, typically, my buy-ins will be close to $200,000. Uh, and I can't, there's, that's, I mean, I can't afford to do it in the first place. There, there were times where I, I could do it, um, but I'd be putting up like a good chunk of my net worth. Uh, and man, I mean, there are just insane bankroll swings in general uh, and insane variance things that you have to fade between like government seizing your money, your site being shut down and then taking your money, people trying to cheat you, et cetera, et cetera. And then my bad investing in crypto somehow. I don't know how, how, <laughs> uh, how you can be bad at that, but I'm, um, in any case, uh, so typically when you have this much money exposed in buy-ins, you'll have investors who will take pieces of your series. So I, well, I, I think it's important to people. I don't think people realize this in general, but like when you are, when I talk about you playing, you know, an event with a $50,000 buy-in, like you are, the poker term is staked and other people are kind of covering your buy-in for a piece of the possible return. Uh, covering some of it, yeah. So typically, I will put up something like, it depends on, it's weird, I do this kind of backwards, I feel really bad uh, selling selling a piece of myself when I feel like I'm playing poorly, so I wound up, I wind up ex- like taking more, um, I wind up taking a higher percentage of myself when really that's when I should be selling. Uh, you're doing this to like mitigate variance, but like ethically, I have a hard time selling people a, a bad product. I, I won't, obviously, but um, so typically I'll I'll risk like anywhere from thirty percent to sixty percent of my own money, uh, and then there will be a small vig that people who are familiar with how I do in these tournaments and have asked to invest in in me as a horse in these tournaments, they'll pay like a small fig to have me be the player playing against a player pool who in theory shouldn't be winning as frequently as, as I should be winning. Um, and all of these statistics are available. I think transparency is really important when it comes to these things. But yeah, uh, so typically I'll put up like anywhere between 30 and 60% and then um, they'll they'll pay like a small little big and that'll also go towards me having like a bigger percent of myself in, in this. But, uh, oftentimes in my best years, 70% of the money has been put up by, um, investors and I'll have 30% of myself. So at the end, and, and usually there are like kind of different packages or two or something, um, to simplify things somehow, like, I don't know. Yeah. Just trust me. It simplifies <laughs> things, but I- it does. It, it doesn't for me at the end, there's a, there are a lot of different packages and I have to figure like this year I wound up turning a small profit, but I took more of myself in these really big events. Uh, there's like one event that's $25,000. It was the first event. I was excited to play it. I knew I was a little rusty. So I took a little more of myself. I didn't want to have investors be exposed as much. I wound up like not cashing in that. And, um, I had less of myself in my overall package. So I turned a profit, but I want, I personally wound up losing. I I kind of feel bad maybe asking this, maybe it's a little bit too personal, but like how crazy are your taxes? 
Like, <laughs> like, how insane is April for you? Or I guess just, I, I mean, what is that? I, I mean, is it just what crazy? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, just no, it's just hearing, hearing the structure is just like kind of blowing my mind. It's not, it's not as bad as, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I hire somebody to, to take mm-hmm. care of this for me. So are there so, poker tax people? Are there guys who yeah, just do taxes for like poker that. players? I mean, there are people who have, who are, yeah, kind of, I guess they're not like specifically poker tax people, but, um, you know, they, some of them play. And so a bunch of people, they're, they're more familiar with like the laws and regulations or whatever. So, okay. um, yeah, there are a couple, there are some like go-to people, I guess, for that. Um, just real quick, like I, so I don't have like these big adrenaline dumps because there's still so much in limbo. Um, there's just like, um, there's a massive, like when you describe when, yeah, I, I, I sleep for a week straight and then try to take my mind off poker for a bit. Uh, and I, I feel like a sense of calm after I've got everyone paid out. I don't like holding other people's money. So there's, there's that. And then, and then it's a struggle for me to be like, all right, let's keep playing poker. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's year to year different. And I just try to get better at it a little bit. Uh, every year I have a hard time. The poker tax stuff, um, it's just a lot of issuing, a lot of, you know, W-2s or W-9s or whatever. So it's, it's not that big a deal. Like, I I have what piece everybody took of me, and then I have to do my own accounting at the end to see what I owe everybody. So it's already there. So something crazy. I just give all that information to my guy and pay him. Um. I haven't seen you in person for quite a while, but one of the last times I saw you was actually before your kind of breakout World Series in 2014. Um, and one of the last times I saw you, and I hope you don't understand bringing this up, like you were really down. Like you were down. Like you were upset and you were thinking about walking, like stopping doing this. This wasn't going to work out. It's a silly thing to try to do. And then you had the breakout. Like what? what do you think changed for you between – like you were honestly at the point of like, I'm not going to do this. I am not, I'm, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to do this. And then like shortly after you go wacky at the world series in 2014, did something change? That's interesting. That's interesting that, that's, that, that you remember that. I think that, that idea exists a lot for me personally, always. And I was having the same thoughts this year and it has nothing to do with, doubting yourself as much as as again this is a game where you're trying to take other people's money um and that's depressing and then <laughs> you know it, like i wanted to do something that would better you know where my contribution where i have a, a contribution that makes the world better i suppose and that that was kind of what my initial plan was um and now i'm in this industry where i'm just trying to take people's money and i'm friends with a lot of these people especially when you play other games besides no limit the player pool is smaller um and there was a time actually when i i was happy to leave chicago i was moving with my ex to la Uh, she wanted to go to la and uh i was excited about the idea because our player pool in Chicago was so small for these mixed games and like, I don't want to lose and I don't want to beat up my friends. I thought it'd be nice to go to a different city and play against anonymous faces and not 
feel bad about taking their money. Um, but then I realized that uh, I'm just going to try to create a community where I'm happy no matter where I am. So it was kind of a, the premise was flawed. Uh, I wound up like befriending everybody there and I mean, now it's the same exact thing. Uh, so, and that's, that's also kind of been a theme for me within World Series of Poker. You're just trying to make the best of it. Uh, I have a lot of themes that kind of arise when morale is low, just to try to have a good time in a play in an in environment that, you know, it's honestly kind of brutal. So, you know, I, sometimes someone will raise and I know I have the hand where I need to re-raise them, uh, at the second time in, or the third time in like 10 hands. And I feel like an asshole, you know, like just simple things like, like, oh man, do I really have to raise this guy again? Like, I feel so bad. Uh, it just, it takes a, it take. I'm, I am not cut out to be a poker player. It, it's just been, I never thought I would ever play poker in the first place. I'm, I'm a great mark for someone to take advantage of. I like, am like from a, it wears on me emotionally, uh, the idea of hurting other people or seeing them sad. There oftentimes there'll be people who are the biggest winners in the game and they'll be like kind of whining about losing a pot and I'm feeling bad for them and I'm so buried and I, but I just can't help it. So, uh, yeah, it's just kind of like a, it's an emotional, it's an emotional beating. And also there are a lot of lessons that you need to learn outside of just beating the game. You have to overcome so much how to deal with like these very big downswings because when you're playing poker, Oftentimes, you're just trying to shovel all your money in with, like, a 70% equity edge. So, seven, oh, and hopefully, over the long over the long run, you realize you're 70%. So, if I get, I'm, I, I, honestly, I should know this, but, okay, say it's, I have a, a flush draw, or you have a flush draw, and I have, you know, a top pair or something like that, like, you'll hit, you know, you'll make your flush like 30% of the time or something. Um, so say the three times you make your flush, I have no chips and, or, or say, say the three times, say the seven times I have the, I have aces and you have a flush draw, whatever. The seven times I win, I, you have no chips. And so I win nothing. And the three times you win, it's the biggest pot of the night. Like, so I get buried the, you're just pushing small equity edges and there's so much variance in like how big the pot is even. And then there's also like, again, yeah, people trying to, whenever there's big money involved, people are always trying to steal. People are colluding against you. This is not a regulated thing in a, in the States anymore. You can't play online uh, with the world in a, on a regulated site. So uh, there's a lot of like sites running off with people's money and it's just, uh, it's kind of the wild west. So it just takes a lot out of you. Um, this is now, now we're going to get weird, Brandon. Um, you learned how to play poker from the band Muse, which you were also once kind of almost maybe sort of a part of. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, that, that was weird. Um, just finishing up on the old, the old thing. Just, yeah, I, go I, ahead. I forgot, uh, going into 2014, which was like my, my best year at world series. Uh, I, I typically didn't play many tournaments. I play cash games usually. Um, I won't go into like the differences or whatever, but um, this, I I was actually living in Steve Albini's studio. Steve um, does the theme music, right? 
He does the theme music, and yeah, he, yeah. and he, and he, and then that at that studio is where the 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 famous poker game is that I played in, and you played in. Yeah, prolific uh, musician, recording engineer, journalist has a poker has a bracelet inside, and almost final tabled that exact same event this last year. Um, I lived in that studio for a little bit. Uh, it was one of like the best periods of my life, actually getting to know. You know, you guys playing, having a, a normal live game with a group of people that who, whose company I really enjoyed and just being around music all the time. Those are really great years. And uh, I, I like from a morale standpoint, that was probably the best. I, it's, I'm kind of curious when I was bemoaning the idea of playing poker relative to how I felt before before World Series 2014, because... I, I was like, I felt like I was kind of calling some shots in 2014. I mean, I did on, like, I actually, I did on paper somewhere. Um, I was feeling like really good, but uh, yeah, just kind of crazy. The Muse stuff, um, the Muse stuff. So, so, man, I'm so sorry for just ranting. It's, uh, it's what the, you've never heard the show. It's nothing but rants. Okay. So, I, uh, I was doing a lot of music and I was playing zero poker. <laughs> I never ever planned on ever playing poker. I mean, who wears like sunglasses indoors? I mean, it's ridiculous. A bunch of musicians, but like, fuck those guys. So, um, I was doing a lot of uh, promotional work for bands and I was like playing piano specifically uh, like eight to 10 hours a day, like just really trying to be a good classical pianists within um I, I like really aggressive rock um and um i like melodic stuff and ambient stuff and I, um my plan was to do this uh this band that was or this project that was supposed to be like an immersion of the senses uh there would be like a progression of smells throughout the show like maybe i associate like chimney smoke with like this block of songs blah 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 and this big audio visual production which is whatever and uh and I was really into classical music too. And I, so I thought it'd be fun to, whatever. Uh, so I was, I was working a lot on that and doing a lot of street team stuff. And I was working with this one band and their uh, promo manager said that some of the stuff I was working on sounds like this band Muse, who at the time, they're a lot different now. Um, uh, at the time, <laughs> They were just kind of like raw and like flailing around a lot and playing a little more rock and a lot of classical stuff. And now it's a little like it's kind of it's like poppier and, and these kind of things. But um, they they're really big into like visuals as well. And I remember seeing there's if you go on YouTube there's a concert called Hullabaloo, and that was when I saw them and it was really impressive. I'm like holy shit! Like this is kind of what I'm trying to do here. So like they're really good. Um, so, uh, yeah, I started listening to their stuff, and then they were touring alongside a band that I was friendly with called Rasputina, which was a cello rock band, and that was convenient. So my girlfriend at the time and I were going to go see Rasputina, and we went to go see Muse. Uh, at the end of the show, which was great, uh, it was their first American tour, I think. Um, they were touring an album called Ab Absolution. Um, so they were playing really small venues in the States and they were like selling out Glastonbury and, you know, overseas or whatever, selling out like, you know, arenas, uh, overseas. So 
we got to see him in these like really intimate settings, which was awesome. And then at the end of one show, oh, and since I was practicing like a lot, and I want to be in the the front of, I want to be at the stage every show. Um, you wait in line, and I'm a dork, so I would bring my keyboard and like practice while I'm waiting in line. Um, and their bus pulled up, and they kind of look at the keyboard and you know way i was eating pizza with the other people in the line at the time so they just like kind of walked past it and gave it a weird look and, and walked away at the end of the show there was like a meet and greet and uh i'm at this point i'm really comfortable meeting musicians and stuff like i've kind of been in, in that industry for for a bit um and i've done a lot of touring with bands and these kind of things um so uh, I was in the back of the line, so I would have some time to talk, and I see Matt, their singer, and I, I'm just like, hey, dude, like, so cool uh, to see another, I just see an artist, like, incorporating classical rock and these kind of things, and um, I kind of brought up uh, the cello band, I thought, oh, you might like music, oh, that sounds kind of up my alley, and then I have, like, part of a, I have a bar from uh, a Chopin piece, like, tattooed on the side of my arm. And he sees that, and he's like, oh, what piece is that? I tell him, and he's like, oh, it's one of my favorite pieces. And um, their drummer was like, weren't you the guy playing keyboard, you know, in the line or whatever? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm stupid, whatever. So uh, my girlfriend was going to pick me up. We were in Detroit, and she didn't want to go in the city. Um, we were kind of road tripping. Um, uh, so I'm like, hey, I'm going to let you guys do your thing. Uh, I'll be outside if you feel like talking more or whatever. So... We go outside and I'm waiting for her and Matt sees me. He's like, "Hey, Brandon, like, you want to come to a bar with us and talk?" And I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" So, um, we he just starts asking me about like what I'm trying to do, and I'm asking him. Like, he's just like seems really into everything, and uh, asking them what they're working on, and he's talking about making a record with more like harmonies, and it's just it just sounds like it's gonna be like a, a bigger album, I suppose, as far as instrumentation is concerned and, and those kind of things. Um, and then Matt, uh, Matt is their guitarist and their, their pianist. So when there is a guitar part and a piano part at the same time, he will trigger a pedal called a MIDI pedal to play the instrument that he can't play while he's doing the other part. So I was, I was just asking, uh, well, I, I was just like, hey, I, I mean, I, do you think you're going to be doing more MIDI or are you going to have a fourth member or whatever? Uh, just curious. At this point, I'm very comfortable. I, I never wanted to be in anyone else's band. Like I had great, like, great uh, musicians who were willing to play what I was working on. Very excited about these things. Um, and he's like... Oh yeah, I think we're gonna, you know, find we're gonna have to get a fourth person or whatever. And I'm like, oh cool. Well, you know, what are you looking for? And he's like, well, you. And uh, he's like, we, you know, I really believe in destiny and whatever. And I didn't want to go looking for somebody. And uh, you know, here you are. Uh, we pay real good, and you see the world, and blah blah blah, whatever. And I'm just like, holy shit. <laughs> uh, I'm like, oh well, you know let's just keep in touch and see how that goes. And, uh, you know, they invited, uh, my girlfriend and I to go see a few more shows in, in the Midwest. Uh, and 
one of like the with the last one being in Chicago, and then we just kind of like depart from there. So, uh, and the then next, you got ghosted by Muse. Yeah, but before I got ghosted by Muse, <laughs> before I got ghosted for the first time, before I got ghosted by Muse the first time, I uh, it, it was during this tour. Uh, we we went in the back of the bus, and they were all playing a lot of poker, and um, and he we were he was like oh i want to show you this like Gregorian chant thing or whatever and uh he's like have you ever played poker and i'm like no and so uh he kind of showed me the rules to poker and uh, i played my first like heads up poker match uh heads up like as like one-on-one or whatever um so i wound up playing my first heads up poker match with him while we were listening to weird Gregorian chant music and exchanging life stories (laughs) And in the back of this tour bus, and I still like can't play and talk at the same time. Like, I have to really, uh, I mean, I have a difficult time with it, but um, so I don't remember the poker game at all. I was just like, this is surreal. Um, and yeah, went, went home and started working on other shit. Figured I'd learn to play poker as well because the other two guys in the band were a little reluctant to have a fourth member, and I didn't want them to see me as somebody trying to infiltrate the band. I for sure wasn't. Um, but it was kind of a, there was an opportunity that like, I was for sure not going to pass up. Um, like I would, you know, you don't have to pay me good, just pay my rent. Like that's, this sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and I thought, I really felt like I could add like, uh, visually just because I really enjoy aesthetics and like flailing around and, you know, hurting myself at, you know, you know, for the sake of the, the cause, you know what I mean? I'm into it. So, yeah, I just went home, started working on poker, uh, since that, that's what I did to bond. Thought it, thought it would be a, you know, a thing to do, I guess. And then, um, and then I didn't hear from them for a very long time. And I'm not like the pestering people kind of thing. Do you, do you want me to continue, like, with, with what happened? Or you just want to hear about, like, that's oh. fine. You learned poker from Muse. I've already taken up way too much of your time. No, I mean I don't. I, I don't care. I just don't want to okay. rant. But. <laughs> I do. I do want to ask you one last question before we let you go, though. Sure. Which is like you don't seem to necessarily, like you said, fit into the poker world, and like there are lots of people who don't like your attitude slash style. You've been known to show up at poker tables in a bear suit. Um, <laughs> you have. Uh, you you. Uh, had an umbrella at an event recently that matched your mask, by the way, which was very impressive. And you kind of sat there with an umbrella the whole time. And at times you seem to just kind of be like openly saying like, this is all ridiculous, but we're doing it anyway. Is that kind of where you are? Uh, I like that interpretation. That's nice. And, and I do feel like, I think I'm, I think there's, there's a lot of love within the poker community that, like I feel, I think a lot of people are, you know, uh, have have been really generous when it comes to um, being nice about my character as a person. I think there's a lot of there's an insane amount of shit talking uh, by high level poker play. I mean, from all poker players, but when. There was a point where in 2014, I, uh, man, 
Okay, I won't, I won't get into it, but there, there's, no, I had like this really weird dream and it was, it was, uh, whatever. Um, there, there was a point in 2014 where I, I was in the 50K Poker Players Championship, which is kind of like the Binance $50,000, those are the one you mentioned before, and like it's a mix of different games. It's the most prestigious tournament for a person who plays all the weird games. Um, it's the one that I had always wanted to play. I finally got to play it and I was, really disenfranchised by the by how like petty and like boys club and whatever like the, the whole state it was just like junior high school it's ridiculous just everybody like talking about how bad so-and-so played and I was really put off by it I was excited to play with these people that I had always wanted to play with and had kind of looked up to and then I was really put off by it and I've progressively been more and more put off by a lot of people's attitudes and also the entity, the World Series of Poker as a whole, just like how little they do a lot of things really well. And, and, but the World Series of Poker is a very small, like part of what was, uh, the Caesars portfolio. I think, I don't know. I don't care like a ton about making the player experience, uh, as great as it should be made. And that was off-putting. So initially, I'm like, I really wanted to uh, represent for this industry and try to make it a better place and, you know, show the world that, I mean, poker players in general are extremely charitable. Um, ton, like, they take up so many great causes, and I, I really think it has to do with, you know, how, how, again, the selfish nature of the game, you know, just wanting to give back and do something for the world. So I appreciate that, that a lot. But um, in general, like I, so I wanted to represent for this industry, and then I slowly, like, started realizing that the industry doesn't care, and a lot of these people are fucking dicks, and um, you know, I don't know. So it, then it turned into like just, and I've I've never really studied. I you know I talk with Steve, and we talk about hands, and you know, there's a group of people that we talk hands every now and again, but like. I haven't done any like really diligent studying with, with people. I'm, I've always kind of been like lone wolf a bit in that sense. And, um, and I just want to make sure I, I'm having a good time. I, when I, when I, when I go into world series of poker, like I don't, I, there is this spite that, uh, I, I do feel spiteful, not because these people speak poorly about me because I, I don't care again, like poker is not my identity. But I do want to make sure these miserable people have like a terrible time, like, like, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, not, not, not from the bear suit or whatever. Like, I want to have a great time, so I'm trying to do something that makes me very happy. And in fact, when I was, like, when I, I took that like five month hiatus from playing anything, and World Series is like very quickly approaching, I, I was spending like my cram time figuring out how to hold an umbrella while, while, while like, you know, I'm like, okay, I was videotaping myself like holding holding on, holding an umbrella while like, uh, betting with physical chips to make sure that like, I can, I could actually do it. Like, I just want to have a good time when, when I'm, I'm doing these things, but I do feel like there is this fight coming into it. And I do feel like it's kind of a lone wolf thing until my buddies come in from Chicago. Or, you know, I do have a lot of friends and I'm very thankful for them within the poker industry, but like Chicago is my home. I want to represent for our people. I love how 2014, like felt like our whole city just kind of took over. Um, and, and that's happened, uh, within our group, uh, you know, 
with with one person or another a, a bunch of different people who uh you and i are, are friendly with like winning a bracelet and killing it you know making, yeah. making a splash so i enjoy that part uh and otherwise i'm just trying to keep morale high for myself so yeah make life difficult like make life difficult for people by putting them in hard situations and then looking like a clown while i'm doing it like i think is kind of like the extra fuck you but uh, <laughs> but, but yeah it's a good time well, Brad, I want to thank you for joining us. I hope you get some rest and then uh, wish you luck in the cash games until the next World Series comes around. Thanks for having me. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'll good. talk Let's to you soon, you man. Then. All right, later.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to the wonderfully weird Brandon Shaq Harris for joining us to talk about poker. Uh, you have been listening to songs by Rid of Me, who was a musical guest on a previous episode, but they're back. So they have a new album out. The album is called Traveling with Two L's. Maybe that's just so you can search for it on Google easier. Uh, Rid of Me is a, a heavy melodic noise punk band from Philadelphia. This is their first full length album. Uh, Stereo Gum had their song off this album which you heard earlier, called Myself, as one of their five best songs of last month. Uh, they are currently doing a record release tour. They have a big show in Philly tonight, which I don't know why I'm telling you that, because you're not going to listen tomorrow. So if that's your first time hearing about this, you missed the show. Uh, you can learn more about me, them, not about me, but them, at ridofme.bandcamp.com. And thanks to uh, the wonderfully fine folks at Rid of Me for supplying the music for this week's show. Um, poker's weird. Brennan's weird. You don't play poker, I assume, Lindsay. I do not play poker. He plays poker at a level that just scares the shit out of me. And, and I, I, like, you know, if I go to Las Vegas and play like 10, 20 poker, where like the minimum bet's $10, like that's enough to make me really nervous and uncomfortable and get me out of my game so I don't do it. He plays, he, again, he mentioned that he plays, he's not really a tournament guy. He plays cash games where you sit down, you play the hand, and you win the money, and that's for that hand, and then you go into the next one, right? Um, he plays like 400, 800, where like the starting bet's $400. Wow. Like he's, he's won 80 grand in a night, and he's lost 80 grand in a night, and I don't know how you do it, and keep your, keep your brain. Yeah, that really scares me. Yeah, it just, it stresses me out just saying it. Um, are you ready for emails? I am ready for emails. Send your emails to us at chinmusic at fangraphs.com. Keep them coming. And we appreciate you uh, sending us enough emails for a all-email show last week with John Taylor. But this is just the three emails that we normally do. But send yours, chinmusic at fangraphs.com. Ask us anything. First email comes from Robert. Robert says, hello, Kevin, an esteemed guest. I was wondering what you were hearing about the winter meetings and if the Major League portion will be canceled. If, if that is true, will that mean there will not be any MLB personnel attending? I was planning on attending the run to run the gauntlet of interviews for a job, but the hiring process across the board is now slowed down as we get closer to the CBA expiring. Do you think the work stoppage will affect teams hiring employees? Um, the it, It's already happened. The major league portion of the winter meetings has been canceled. Um, have you canceled your hotel? Lindsay? Oh, I never booked it. You're <laughs> I so never smart. It. <laughs> I knew that you're, you're you're smarter than most. I know. Yeah, didn't did not either. I knew that this lockout was going to happen when three weeks ago I was talking to an executive with a team, and I said, "Have you canceled your winter meeting thing?" And he and he said, "No." I said, "I didn't book it." I said, "You never even booked a trip to the winter meetings." Mm-hmm. And he went, "Nah." And I said, "Okay, we're in trouble. We're not going anywhere here." Um. So if you were planning on being uh, one of the young people in a, a tremendously poor fitting suit, running around with your resume to talk to people, or maybe you even had some interviews scheduled, I don't think those are going to happen or they're going to happen over Zoom or something because Major League Baseball personnel are not going to the winter meetings at this point. Um, and most of them are pretty happy about that. Um, do you Are you going to miss the winter meetings at all? There are aspects I enjoy. Oh, I'm really going to miss it. Um, it's Hang great. out with it's your like, buds? Yeah, like... It's it's a nice way to like break up the off season. Um, you know, it's it's at least like one final thing seeing a bunch of ball riders who I haven't seen in at least a few weeks, so I don't hate them anymore. Um, <laughs> and then you know I can go kind of into the like depressing quiet period of the off season. But no, I I like it. I mean, 
the first few winter meetings I went to, I did not go as a beat writer and it was just like horrible because there's, I just didn't find much to do. Um, but at least as a beat writer, I like have a bunch of structure. Um, and there's something going on, you know, the last winter meetings I went to the Yankees signed Garrett Cole and that was exciting because it meant that it wasn't going to drag out like the Manny Machado and Bryce Harper thing did. So Mm -hmm. I had a great time. I was like, Oh, they've done it. Um, yeah, I, I actually will miss the winter meetings, and I'm very sad that we won't get to do this. So, but yeah, if you're planning to go interview for jobs, I, that's all going to be a Zoom, I assume. But no, Dan, no, what I know in Major League Baseball is good. The minor league portion will still happen, and I'm told the minor league rule five will happen as well. Um, and it's important to note, like for the winter meetings, um, the overwhelming majority of people who are attending that as people who work in baseball are minor league people, because obviously there's you know, whatever, a couple hundred minor league teams, and they all send groups there to do minor league stuff. But I guess the trade show got canceled too. No. Yeah, so there's a minor league no. trade show. Yeah, there's a minor league trade show that you can get into if you have a pass for it. That's like, hey, try our ice cream. We got a different, we got, you know, we got dot and dips, and they're better than dip and dots. And you should have these in your stadium. Or look at, we have hot dogs shaped like rabbits, and check these out. You want those in your stadium too. And it's like a trade show for people, mostly for minor leagues to, um, promotional materials, food, all that kind of stuff. It's a really kind of weird time at entertain, but I guess that got canceled already too. Oh my gosh. I have a story about the trade show. Oh, go, go, go. It's not a very good story, but um, I was there, I think the first year that they introduced the Cheeto popcorn. Um, and that was, you know, like a minor league or like a concession only thing. And now sometimes when I go to my local CVS, I like see the Cheeto popcorn in store and I feel like really proud because I feel like I saw the origin of the You're on the Cheeto- ground floor. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, saw you, you know the origin story <laughs> of Cheeto popcorn. I saw the Cheeto popcorn go from like weird ballpark thing to just like things stoners buy at CVS. And like I honestly love that journey for the Cheeto popcorn. <laughs> so that's that's my favorite trade show story. Yeah, it's, it's all sorts. It's 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 uh, that, that I know you want to serve ice cream in a mini helmet. I can supply your mini helmets. You know that's what that's what it is. Um, and so it's a good time, and that guy can't do. But so there will still be minor league. There still will be the winter meetings. Um, all the minor league teams are going to attend and do whatever the minor league stuff does. But all the winter meeting stuff, um, which is mostly. There is some big league stuff that happens there. Like there is an international meeting. There's an amateur meeting where you get like all the international directors or or amateur directors together to talk about issues at hand. Um, like those all happen just, I assume, over Zoom or a conference call now or something like that. Um, but I like the winter meetings too. But to be honest with you, as some, you know, when I worked for a team, they weren't nearly as fun because you just kind of sat in the suite and texted all day mm-hmm. and sat there and go, why are we here if we're just texting? Um, and so... Yeah, it's 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 a strange thing, but yeah, no winter meetings this year. Uh, those have been canceled, and, and if you were looking to do the gauntlet of interviews, I would get back in touch with whoever you're going to talk to. Um, and good luck. Hope you get a job in baseball, if that's what you want. Our next email comes from Kyle. And Kyle says, inspired by the what are you drinking throwback, KG, are you a cannabis consumer? I believe it's legal in DeKalb. It is. It became legal January this year. If so, what is your favorite way to imbibe? Have you tried growing your own? When you worked for the Astros, did they drug test? Does any front office? In light of Singleton's history, it seems pretty shitty if front office people can enjoy cannabis, but players can't. Um, I'm going to work backwards on this one. Um, so John Singleton obviously uh, had some sh- – Major League Baseball does not test for marijuana on big leaguers, um, and they have changed their testing policy on minor leaguers. 
Um, where it's no longer a suspension, it's more of just a, a, a stern talking to, I believe. Um, so I have, a, I have a story that, actually, that I think is kind of funny. Um, so front office people are not tested, but I was tested when I first got the job. Like, like to get in, I got tested. And, um, and so I, I, you know, was in negotiation with the Astros. Uh, we had everything solved. Things got finally got figured out. Agreed to terms, if you will. Signed a term sheet. Got my contract. Uh, and my phone rang, and it was Jeff Luna. And he goes, hey, man, look. Oh, no. I don't really care what you do. It's something the company has to do. Like, I, could, I don't care at all. I could give a crap, but I kind of have to do it. If you need me to delay. And I, and I was just sitting there going, this guy thinks I'm a total pothead. I'm just going to let him go. And I let him go. Like, and again, like I could, I could give a shit about this stuff. It's a company policy. Like there are ways I can delay this if you need it. And then we can get it and get you through. Cause I don't really care. And I said, I can pass the test right now. It's fine. Um, I could, but I did enjoy kind of letting him go for a while. Um, so uh, I am, I would call myself an occasional user. I can never imagine even thinking of growing my own for Christ's sake. Um, i bought marijuana legally for the first time in april and to be honest with you i still have some that's how often i use um i i enjoy it i like i I like getting high i have a vape pen and that's what i use um and but i just don't do it that much i I, it's not like a an everyday thing for me i don't i don't do it a lot i fine with it as a as an occasional thing hey let's get high and watch blade runner or something um and i do like the stuff and, and i have no problem with it and i think it should be fully legal in all 50 states um but I'm not like a huge user. God, growing my own, whatever. I did. So when I bought marijuana legally at a dispensary in Illinois where it is legal for the first time, I went there. I bought my stuff. And then I got in my car to drive home. And I, and I had a, you know, on the passenger seat, Lindsay, I had a bag of marijuana. Oh, no. And I was getting ready to turn left out of the parking lot. And a cop drove by and I froze. I just froze and I went, wait a second. I just, <laughs> this was perfectly legal, right? Cause I'm, you know, I'm an old man and previous drug purchases in my, in my indiscreet youth was worth, you know, going to Denny's and waiting for some guy named Ronald to answer his fucking phone. Um, you know, but it, it, it was just such a weird, a weird thing. Like the cop went by and I just instinctively went, oh shit. And oh like, man. I'm fine. I'm fine. No, you're good. Uh, yeah. It's legal in New York, right? No. Well, it will be eventually. That was one of like Andrew Cuomo's like um, attempts to do some like cool be- shit while to he was become like, cool. in scandal. That was like that was like the one that was like the one nice thing about this mm. is that he just like kept like doing all of these good policy things. And we were like, how, you, how great <laughs> you like is he me now, make right? This state before he leaves, like what what's going on here? Um, I mean, I I think it's funny because. Previously, baseball's rule was that for major leaguers, they didn't test unless there was like reasonable suspicion or whatever. So that's why Tim Lincecum got tested. Um, But now there's no testing. And I remember speaking to someone in the league office around the time that they made this change. And they were like, we don't care about weed. Like our players, you know, our players using marijuana, whatever. Like we'd rather them do that than more dangerous things. I think... um, the unregulated CBD market really complicates that. Um, but after Major League Baseball basically 
legalized weed across uh, its levels. Actually, the the people I heard from the most were like front office or like league staffers being like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, this, exactly. this is great for me. Like it, it wasn't the players who were worried about it. It was just, you know, sort of the rank and file um, club and league office employees were like, hell yes, I can just consume legal marijuana or I guess not legal, depending on who it was. Oh, I can I can consume marijuana in peace now and just move on. And I was like, oh, yeah. I forgot about you guys. Like, this isn't just about the players. Like, you guys are good to go now, too. Right. I always said, it's, 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 it, you know, good to think about Singleton again. I was always like, you know, a, and a lot of players do use, and like, a player getting high and sitting at his home playing his Xbox, I can think of a hundred things I'd rather, you know, not have him do than that. <laughs> it's so preferable. Like, you know, baseball becoming a stoner sport is like, it's like a great, Turn of events for yeah for for people who want who who have investments in player success right <laughs> good outcome um and so yeah they don't do any more there's the, you know it's, it's complicated because of the weird state by state rules and stuff like that and um you know i won't name any name but there are teams that have people who are happy that they're you know that they have a three-game road trip in in colorado yes you know um it just that's how it is um and hopefully again like i again i it should be legal everywhere and hopefully it will be soon um last email comes from jason jason says kg an illustrious resplendent words using co-host oh no i'd love to hear more from you as someone who spent a lot of time with the astros and fangraphs doing player evaluations on what exactly 80 grade tools are for that matter an 80 grade player given that eric hit wander franco with an 80 fb and now we have a reasonable exp- expectation of what he's going to become as a big leaguer. How many guys in the majors right now have 80 grade tools? Who are they? What are those tools? I imagine Stanton's raw power and Trey Turner's sprint speed qualify, but what else is out there? How many guys in the majors are 80 grade players? Why is the scale 20 to 80 instead of 10 to 100? This perplexes me most at all. Uh, blame Let's, Branch Ricky. Blame Branch Ricky, but blame science. Because, hey, that's it's a thing to do to blame science these days. Um, so Branch Rickey, uh, is the person who originated the 20 to 80 scale. What's wrong, puppy? And, um, and, but, but it's important to note that that 20 to 80 scale was based on, uh, a commonly used scientific scale of 20 to 80, where 50 is average. And then the 10, three and above represent one, two, and three standard deviations above and below, below average. And for statistical reasons, I don't necessarily understand anything above and beyond three standard deviations is noise and doesn't matter. And so that's why he used that scale. He didn't invent the scale. He adapted a scientific scale. Um, 80 grade tools. I mean, you named it. I mean, Lindsay's up close with the Mike Stanton and Aaron Judge are 80 power guys. There's no question about it. Very, you know, no one hits balls as hard as them. But like Chris Gittens, who also played for the Yankees until a couple of days ago, and he's going to go to Japan and hit 50 home runs, um, has 80 raw power. He doesn't get to it a lot because he's not a great hitter, but that's 80 raw power too. He hits balls as hard as Stanton and Judge when he gets to them. Um, like Trey Turner's an 80 runner. Like there, there are no 80 bats right now. Like Ichiro, Tony Gwynn are 80 bats, but there, that guy doesn't exist right now. I was going to say like, what's, what's the terminology for 80 contact? (laughs) Right. You don't really use it. Like it's, it's like the, 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 the hit tool kind of is, is scaled to batting average and an 80 hitter is 330. Like who's, who's, who's a guy that you just slam dunk 330 hitter right now? I don't think that guy's around right now. Is it Tim Anderson? 
Dana, do you feel country's going to hit 330 every Honestly, year? Honestly, when I see anyone hitting over 300, I'm like, holy crap. This is <laughs> this is what it was like to watch Ted Williams. Like, <laughs> like this guy's hitting 295. He's a genius. Um, Tim Anderson hit 309 this year. Yeah. He hit 322 last year, and he hit 335 in 2019. Yeah. That was the year uh, he edged out the batting title over DJ LeMayhew, who I did think was Ted Williams that year as well. So, <laughs> And so, yeah, and so it's not a lot of, 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 you know, 80 gloves are really weird and super, mm. like the scale doesn't scale perfectly. Like there's no 80 shortstops and maybe you could say one is and people don't, people were afraid to, 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 to put the grade on them. But like the, the, the industry understands the language, if you will. And so even if it doesn't necessarily you know, match up perfectly or, or, or create a perfect bell curve. The industry understands what the grades mean and, 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 and that's all you really need. It works as a language. Um, it's time to catch up with Lindsay. Lindsay, I have, I have a question I'm kind of just dying to ask you here because you are a beat writer. You cover the New York Yankees for The Athletic. Um, it is December and it's this time of year you would be covering the Yankees offseason. Um, we already spoke about how quiet they were during last week's free agent frenzy. Um, but now it's going to get real quiet because um, we are locked out. So the Yankees are not going to make any moves. And so like your plans for December of covering the Yankees offseason are off the board. Um, any other article about what's currently going on with the Yankees is made more difficult by the blackout from Yankees personnel that you now will not return your phone call. Um, what are you doing? I'm going to be chilling. I'm going to be visiting many of New York City's finest museums and finest um, mid-range restaurants, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> What's mid-range? Uh, I don't know if it's mid-range, but like, you know, I'll be eating the like mid-tier pizza, the like the like $3 slice version, gotcha. not not the dollar pizza and not the like mm-hmm. $30 pizza. Um I'll just probably be doing a lot of that. I mean, I didn't, I told everyone I knew that I was just going to go to Europe for all of December and then I booked absolutely nothing. So I will not be doing that. Um, I mean, I'm just going to chill and I think try to think creatively outside of the box in terms of what else I could do. Maybe I'll like profile someone who's baseball adjacent or something like that maybe I won't um I for whatever reason I had you know I I saw this outcome coming I I pretty much knew there was going to be a lockout I pretty much knew it was going to be immediate like I had all sorts of you know I I prepared for it in like a work sense but um I don't know when the lockout hit at like what 12:01 a.m. or whatever I was like damn this does feel different. So um, I'm kind of glad that I left it open-ended and I'm mm-hmm. not really sure what it'll look like. And I didn't, I didn't anticipate or know that there would be a full media lockout. Like I knew that I knew that club employees would not be able to talk about 40 man players, but I didn't know it'd be this drastic. So um, yeah, you can just like find me at the Met or whatever, I guess. <laughs> do you, do you feel any, Pressure, even I even self-imposed. Like I still got to feed the beast here and have something with my byline on it. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm not sure what my um, 
responsibilities will be. I have a lot of PTO banked and I probably would have taken, you know, off around the holidays anyway. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I, I don't want to sit out on this story. Um, you know, fortunately we have Evan Drellick who does an amazing job covering the real day-to-day -day aspects of the labor beat. You know, I, the Yankees are a very labor heavy team and there are certain elements of it that I find like pretty interesting from that sense. So like, I do want to, um, I do want to do dip, as much as I dip can. Dip your toes in it at least. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't want to just like make stuff up as well. <laughs> I mean, I didn't get a vote here, man. Like <laughs> this, <laughs> this lockout just came to like my house. So um, I, I think if I did not cover some of the different aspects of it, whether it's, you know, players, you know, making sure to have their off season programs or whatever it is. Um, I think I would regret that, you know, if I looked back at this, um, unfortunately historic moment in the future of major league baseball. And I was just like at the Met every single day, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not even sure what the, like the landscape is going to look like. So I'm right. content taking it day by day and also, um, trying to sort of reset my brain a little bit. Here's a, I don't know the answer to this. We probably should have talked about this earlier. We we're talking about the lockout mechanics itself, but um, will players answer your phone right now? Probably. I mean, they're going to be bored and really sassy. So, like, if any player wants to like call me, you can probably like find my phone number. Like, we can we can talk about the labor drama. We can talk about Netflix. Like, whatever. Like, players would probably answer the phone. Okay, but then they're allowed to like they're not they're not yeah. having they don't have some weird unified front or anything like that. No, Doesn't I don't seem that think way so. so far. I mean, I'm curious if like anyone would want to like go on the record and be like, "Let me speak about this situation," you know, from my point of view or whatever. I don't know if that would happen, but like, you know, I feel like it's now more likely that um, I would get a you know, "Happy New Year's to you too." response from a player than I would from a club executive. So that's, right. that's fine. Um, how long have you been the beat writer for the athletic? Um, so I started covering the Yankees in 2018 and then I took over the beat full time in 2019. So you've done four years covering the Yankees. Yes. Do you, how do you operate long term? Do you just, are you one of those people? I can operate like, I don't know what I'm doing next week. Or do you, do you say, like, I want to be here in X years? Or do you just go, hey, right now I'm the beat writer for the Yankees and the Athletic. That's great. I'm rolling. You know, COVID really, like, threw everything mm -hmm. uh, out of whack there. I'm. It's just so much harder to plan anything from, like, a even just, like, a story point of view. Um, so I'm pretty good with the flow right now. Um, I would say, I mean... I think there are certain things about, you know, the way I cover the team that I would like to change. Like, I, I feel like there are things that I understand about the organization that I have not figured out how to, like, articulate and print. And I find mm. that very important to figure out how, how to do. So I have, like, personal goals in terms of, like, coverage. Um, but, you know, when there's, when there's a freaking media freeze, like, I, that really it, – it's not going to, like – eat away at me that I won't be able to like make progress on certain stories or whatever like that. Um, right. Since this pandemic began, it has been a big exercise in 
holy crap, there's a lot of stuff out there that is beyond my control, which is um, definitely a destabilizing um, experience, but also probably good and probably makes me a little bit more um, flexible as a writer in general. So mm. that's fine. I mean, but do you think about um, becoming a national writer? Do you think about being on TV? Do you think about saying fuck all, all this and, and becoming a curator in a museum? Like, what do, do you think about like those kind of bigger picture things? Oh, I don't think about going on TV. That's for one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I like to keep an open I'm not mind. To prep, I'm not saying you have to. I think it's fine no, if you don't. I mean, I think with something like, like with art or baking, like which are, you know, two of my hobbies, like I don't think that I don't think if I made a career change, I don't think I would turn another one of my hobbies into my career again. Um, I'm very, very glad that I turned baseball into my career. I, I don't know what I would have been doing otherwise. This is probably the only real route to relative financial stability for me, so that's fine. But like, no, I have very much learned the importance of keeping my hobbies as hobbies. So you know, it would just be sort of like what other types of writing are available to me. Like I don't, I've never really like aspired to work in TV. I don't know the mechanisms of that. Um, it's kind of been nice to be sort of like entrenched in the chaos of a bunch of like unpredictable shit happening over the last two baseball seasons so that I maybe don't have to um, <laughs> can consider that because I, there's just always this sort of like pull that's like, well, you know, when things are a little bit more normal again, and then nothing ever goes back to normal. So I can just roll with it a little bit. I don't know. I'm, I'm open-minded, but. Um, so did Giuseppe deserve yeah. to win the Great British Break Off? And did Jurgen get screwed by not making the final? Oh my God. I haven't watched since Mary Berry left because I'm very stubborn. Oh my yeah. God. No, I'm very, I'm very loyal and very stubborn. And so I do not watch the post Mary Berry era of great british bake-off which it's is like probably it, it's harming me more than anyone else it is like, right what did why why is this the, the the hill you're gonna die on because like i would say like 35 percent of my personality is dying on stupid hills so like this is just like one of them like, <laughs> it's what this i'm designed just, to just do like, yeah this just like goes into the like collection of dumb shit that I abstain from or I'm obsessed with just because I have decided that's going to be the case. <laughs> so uh, do you have a, 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 a an alternate baking show you watch? Not really. No. You just do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's it. I don't I don't think I really watch. I mean, I'm having a lot of I'm having a hard time watching TV in general now like I mean it used to be that like I would be on the road and I would be working a lot and so like getting to my hotel and turning on Netflix at the end of like a long game in right. where do I go? St. Pete. Like that was like a big luxury, but now that I've had so much access to, to television and also I've rotted my brain with TikTok, um, <laughs> I have kind of a hard time watching TV <laughs> like I don't watch like a baking show, but like I do like the Netflix like glass blowing show. That's sort of my stand in for sort of the procedural um, hyper niche area of expertise type of television. But yeah. Well, I, let, let's get it. Let's go right. Let's roll right into our moment of culture. Is that your moment yeah. of culture? The glass blowing show? Mm, no, I would say 
I would say the Jasper Johns retrospective at the Whitney is my moment of culture. Oh, now we're gonna do it. Now we're now we're gonna get fancy. This is it's good. It's so good. It's so good. And wait, which I, museum is this at? It's at the Whitney. Okay. In in New York City, baby. And how long is it there? I believe it's there until March. It's just like this enormous, enormous retrospective. That was going to be my next question. Like, how big is it? Like, it's, how, how? It's so big. And it's like the way the exhibition is designed, like, I just keep getting lost. Like, I think the first time I was there, I think I accidentally spent like four hours <laughs> there, just like wandering in circles because I kept finding cool stuff or, you know, happening to run back into cool stuff, which... Um, I think that might have been user error on my part, but it worked out pretty well. Um, I had seen a Jasper Johns exhibition in Houston in 2019 when I was there for work, but it was a lot of like his like flag based and iterative stuff, and I didn't really like the stage, which is what he's famous it. for. Yeah, yeah, which is like now seeing some of, some of the flag and the map stuff in the context of this larger retrospective. I can't tell you like why I like Jasper Johns now. I can't tell you anything about him. All I know is that he's 91 years old and still working. Um, and I find his work very, very creatively moving. Um, and I have had two extremely great fun afternoons at the Whitney looking at the Jasper Johns oh, yeah, so, so you've, you've gone to this retrospective twice. Yes. And if I could get in without paying $25, I would go again. So will you go again before the end of March? Um, depends on the circumstances, but I also need to go see the Kandinsky exhibit at the Guggenheim, which is a different use of $25. So <laughs> we'll see. Don't you, I, can't you do like a membership thing and well that's why that's why i like the met because as a new york city resident i can pay what i wish which is one dollar um so i go to the met like constantly um which is kind of like makes it a comfort space which makes it very different from a place like the guggenheim or the whitney for me which is more of a destination blow my brain wide open looking at art type of experience Right. I'm going to go, you went highbrow, I'm going lowbrow. Please do. Um, and this is a show on Hulu, and it's called City of Angels, City of Death. Oh, wow. Um, it's a murder show. We watch murder shows here in the in the household. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's in terms of, of production values and all that kind of and, and, and execution. It's 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 very average, but the story itself is just fascinating. Where for this period of time from a, like the late 70s into well into the into almost the mid 80s uh, in Los Angeles, they had a serial killer run. And so there were times where there were literally four active operating serial killers in Los Angeles, all with their own kind of MO. And it's just kind of how the city dealt with having like not this one case, but there's four of them. And so all of a sudden, like there's a, you know, the hillside strangler aptly named for leaving the bodies on hillsides, like all of a sudden there's a body on the hill. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, there's another, the guy who leaves his, uh, who leaves his victims on the highway, left another one there. And they're like going from one to another. Um, and this strange run, and they try to, they, they don't explore enough, like why this happened, like why there was this huge time in, in history, but it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating in the world of serial killers, which Shouldn't fascinate me, but do. It's lurid, and I admit it. Um, 
but to have like four or five four operating at one time and like they would solve two of the cases and arrest the pe- person or people which is very strange when you have like two people acting as serial killers who are like like one group and like how do you say hey i'm thinking of killing this person you want to come and like they get into it together but anyway that's, that's a tangent but like they would solve two cases and all of a sudden like okay we're down to two serial killers and then another one would start up so serial killers who have an mo like i would think that like if i were interested in killing a bunch of people i would not want to make it easy yeah. for cops to link it so i guess for them maybe the thrill of it is in having um a personal brand and not necessarily like maybe the passion is not killing people but it's of eluding law enforcement in a scared there's, community there's definitely part of it and you, they, they do cover this part where they are very into the attention they're generating and and it got to the point where almost as as sick as this sound as this is like they actually they were aware of the other serial killers and were trying to top them wow um and so they yeah they are very very aware of of what they're doing it was just it, it, the mo was really victim based like this is the guy who picks up girls at the sunset strip this is the this is the guy who kills uh teenage boys like this is and it, it, it was such a like they all, it was more like the mo's are almost always victim based and there's like what they did and how they got rid of the bodies but it got did get to a weird point where they they're definitely very into the attention and when you know serial killer b would get a lot of attention for something serial killer c would try to do something more to eclipse them and get the bigger headline and it turned into like this weird competition among them it's so cool that like now when someone wants attention they can just say something stupid on the tweet. internet and <laughs> killing people like that's just like really nice that's like that's progress you know right. you can just like make a tiktok account and go viral instead of murdering women like i just think like that's like a pretty good outcome <laughs> so what we've learned today is that the internet not so bad now every time i see someone post what's clearly a deranged take for attention i'm going to wonder if they would have been a serial killer right well at least they're not killing anybody so nice (laughs) i love that for them and for us (laughs) (sighs) well Lindsay, i think we're done here i want to thank you for wasting an entire afternoon with me on a very long show with lots to talk about um if people want to follow you on twitter where do they go they go to at Lindsay adler with an e or they go to the met i guess because i'm always there don't do that, people. Um, and yeah, follow on Twitter. And when maybe she'll tweet something, and you'll say to yourself, "Well, thank God she's not killing people." So true. You'll probably feel that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening, everybody. The show will continue throughout the lockout. We'll have plenty of baseball and non-baseball content, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>